Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. Hey, looks like we are live. Everybody, welcome to Standing for Truth. I am your host, Donnie, and I want to thank everybody for being here for tonight's very important debate. I have Matt Slick and Joshua Gibbs, two brothers here uh, with me to debate. The important topic is limited atonement biblical. Both of these debaters, uh, Matt and Josh, are uh, very seasoned and knowledgeable on this topic. So this is definitely going to be one to remember. Uh, gentlemen, uh, Matt, Josh, thank you so much for being here on Standing for Truth for this important debate. For sure. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I like no, it, Matt. Thanks for having it. It'd be good. It'd be good. Yeah, good hey, laughter is the best medicine, and this is going to be fun yeah, too. That's right. It's good. Two brothers are discussing this important topic. So, uh, before we break the ice, though, and, and kind of get to know the debaters a little bit, I did want to remind anybody who is not yet subscribed: if you love debates, interviews, discussions, and more, then please make sure to hit that subscribe button. We have now hosted and moderated uh, well over 130 debates on all sorts of awesome topics. So please share around this content as the truth and critical thinking is important. Uh, also, a reminder, this week is Big Four Debates. Tonight, obviously, the much-anticipated debate between Matt Slick and Josh Gibbs. And on Thursday, we'll be back for the... Uh, epic round two debate between uh, Kent Hoven and Jackson Rowe, Genesis Flood and Noah's Ark, fact or fiction. So make sure you are here for that. So that being said, uh, Matt and Josh, thanks again for giving us your time. Why don't we uh, kind of get to know you guys a little bit uh, before we get into the opening statements. Matt, you've been here numerous times. I believe this is your, your seventh time debating on this show. Oh, Why don't we start? <laughs> You're a busy man. Nice uh, number. I like that. Yeah, there we go. There we go. So uh, why don't we start with you? You know, who are you and uh, how have you been? How's everything at CARM? Well, uh, Matt Slick, Reverend Matt Slick, ex-pastor, seminary graduate, and uh, been a Calvinist for about 30 years and defending the, the Christian faith since 1980. So next month, I'll just go to 42 years. It's been that long, written several books. The CARM.org website has had... Uh, 148 million visitors, and so I do a lot of a lot of stuff defending the faith, and I'm a reformed person, and I believe in the sovereignty of God, and His greatness, and that I'm saved by His grace and kept by His grace, and that nothing I do is good enough in any way, shape, or form to get saved, or stay saved. But all, all the glory goes to Him, and uh, along with that, uh, I, just so you know, I used to resist limited atonement uh, vehemently, and uh, and then one day I had a discussion with someone where I took the other position just to assume the position validity. And then it started answering more questions 
uh, than the other position did. And, and I, I moved over there and I've been a slimy cult Calvinist ever since. <laughs> slimy so. cult. <laughs> that too. I'm a, I'm a definite cultist. There's a cult starting up called the Carmites and uh, the, the slick, the cult of slick, which is never going to take off, but uh, that's what it is. Well, you know, you've made it when, uh, you know, when you've got people making up a, a cult name, the Carmite itself, something mm -hmm. to be proud of. <laughs> that's Next right. thing, you, you just need a cologne named after you. Yeah, it'll smell something earthy, like dirt <laughs> and uh, some other stuff mixed in because that's, you know, but yeah. That's awesome. Great introduction, Matt. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you again for being here. Uh, Josh, let's hand it over to you. Uh, you were here as well a few months ago, and uh, it's nice to have you back. I appreciate it. A uh, little bit about you, who you are, and what can people expect to find over at your channel? Uh, yeah, uh, there's not a whole lot to know about me. I'm just a layman, uh, likes to read the Bible, study the Bible, read books, and argue with people on the internet, whether it's atheists or Christians. Uh, soteriology primarily. My, my channel is talking Christianity apologetics. I haven't done anything on it for a few months, uh, but uh, there's some good stuff on there. We've had a lot of text criticism conversations and debates. You'll find uh, if you guys are into that, you've probably you've probably seen the Peter Gurry, Jeff Riddle, uh, James Snap, Stephen Boyce stuff that's on there. So, uh, but yeah, there's really not a whole lot. I operate a bulldozer for a living, so hopefully uh, you'll get a, a taste of some bulldozer Christianity tonight. But that's <laughs> that's about it. So, well, I won't bulldoze you. How's that? No, that's good, man. <laughs> no bulldozing going on tonight. Yeah. Not on my show. Yeah, hey, well, <laughs> you should, Josh. You should tell him what happened. I mean, so people can pray for you. Oh, not a whole lot. I just got hit by a bulldozer, but um, we're all good. So I'm uh, still alive and kicking, and just uh, going through. Uh, a little right. bit of uh, therapy to get get to feeling better back there in my back. So, all right, praise God. Jacuzzi, that'll work. Oh, you know what? Yeah, that sounds nice about right now. <laughs> I had a severe back injury once and uh, couldn't even walk without help, and then got into a jacuzzi with help. Was there for two hours, walked out on my own. Nice. That's awesome. amazing. It's a miracle, yeah, Jacuzzi. After the second alien abduction, though, I I wasn't able to walk very well. <laughs> so. Two alien abductions in one lifetime. That's yeah. Impressive. It was well. That was back then. I was nineteen. Uh, so I'll, we got stories, but yeah, I'm not going to ask you any questions about that. <laughs> oh, that's great. I know stuff, but anyway, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> no, yeah, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Praise God, uh, Josh. We're going to be praying for you. A speedy recovery. Uh, you got quite the story there. So, uh, great introductions from the both of you, Matt and Josh. Great, uh, great way to start this debate. So, real quick, I'm going to go over the format for tonight for the audience. Say, we're going to be having a pretty formal debate. Uh, 15 minute opening statements, followed by an eight minute uninterrupted rebuttal. Then we're going to have uh, two rounds of cross examination. We'll have Josh uh, kind of lead the way, ask Matt questions for about 30 minutes, and then Matt will get to lead the way and ask Josh questions for about 30 minutes. Then we're going to have five minute closing statements. And then this is where we get you guys in the audience involved. We're going to have an audience QA. So make sure you are tagging me with your questions at Standing for Truth. That way I don't miss your question. So again, tonight we're debating, is limited atonement biblical? We're gonna hand it over to Josh. Josh, you're gonna start us off. You've got 15 minutes. All right, sounds good. I'm gonna have to share my screen here. Sure, definitely. Okay, so I just select, I'll just select entire screen, I guess. So. 
Okay. Can you see that? Yes. Awesome. That looks okay. good. So start whenever I'm ready, you said? Yes. Whenever you're ready, I'll start uh, start your timer and I'll give you a one minute warning when you reach the 14 minute mark as well, Josh. So Awesome. Appreciate that. Okay, okay cool. Okay. So uh, the title of this debate is going to be uh, the atonement. It's going to be limited or unlimited. And essentially what we're covering is going to be the effectuality of the atonement. The effectuality of the atonement is obviously typically um, limited to the extent. Uh, obviously, you're going to have uh, other incorporations on what the intent of the, the atonement is and the application as well. Hopefully, we'll be able to draw those things out as we go throughout tonight. So first, I'd like to take a historical look at limited atonement itself. Um, when we're looking at whether the atonement is limited or not, I think it's important to look at the historical side. When you, when you see the first, uh, say, 400 years of church history in the, in the patri patristics, you really only have one guy who's kind of controversial. Some authors, some scholars will say that Augustine was, was a limited atonement and adherent. Others will say he wasn't. Uh, then you get to the Reformation. The, the first guy that really pops up then is ninth century with Gottschalk and then Florence of Lyons and John Bradford. Uh, and this graph kind of shows what uh, the blue representing the unlimited atonement view and the green represented it, uh, representing the limited atonement view. So you get to the post-Reformation period, and, and this is where it really moves in the 17th century after the Reformation period to uh, the exhaustive divine determinism uh, side of the conversation. And a lot of that had to do uh, with uh, guys like John Owen, Peter Lombard, and these these conversations about the atonement, but we'll get into that as we as we go here. But the modern area, the modern era, has continued to increase towards the exhaustive divine decree side of things, which is obviously going to include the limited atonement. And this information comes from uh, David Allen's book, uh, The Atonement. Uh, I, I I think I got it out of the atonement, not his book, The Extent of the Atonement. But but anyways, that's neither here nor there. David Allen quotes in the book, The Atonement, on page 156, he says that Christ died for the sins of all people is clearly taught in Scripture in numerous places. The key passages asserting unlimited atonement are going to include Isaiah 53, 6, Mark 10, 45, John 1, 29. I won't read them all, but these are the common texts, the most, uh, most common texts that you're going to look to in the limited atonement debate. There's basically 12 texts to look at. There's also additional texts that uh, implicitly affirm a uh, unlimited atonement as well. And you should be able to see those on your screen as well. There's about 10 or 12 of those uh, to look at also. So, uh, but those are going to be implicitly to affirm unlimited atonement. So now there are problems with the limited atonement model, especially, especially within a penal substitution model, which is something that I affirm. And when you're when you're looking at the atonement, whether it's it's limited or or unlimited, really what you're looking at is the extent of the atonement. Who's the atonement actually extended to? The question can also be rephrased to to ask for whom did Christ die, and uh, for whom was, uh, or and and even for the application for whom was uh, uh, the atonement applied to? One of the problems is going to be the Lombardian formula, uh, which is typically worded in a way that you've probably heard is uh, that the atonement is sufficient to save all people based off of the infinite value of the blood of Christ, the blood of God, uh, but it's only efficient to save the elect. 
then you've got Owen's formula. Owen's formula is uh, essentially it's a, it's more of a, a cost analysis of a price owed to a price paid. He even goes so far as to assign value to each drop of blood uh, being assigned to each sin for for each um, for each of the elect that was that, that were atoned for. The third is going to be what the atonement actually accomplished. I, I think this is probably what the conversation hopefully is going to be drawn towards tonight what the atonement actually accomplished. I believe that it did accomplish something. There's a lot of things that Matt, or, Matt and I are going to agree on in this aspect. Um, I'm not sure that he's familiar with my position, but uh, hopefully we'll draw that out as we go. The fourth is going to be why the atonement was actually necessary. Uh, this can be drawn out in Romans chapter 5, um, and that's going to go back to um, it, kind of the effect that that Adam had on all of humanity as our federal head and the remedy of what Christ did as our new federal head. The fifth is going to be penalty of sin. Uh, the penalty of sin is going to be drawn out, and there's always going to be a debate over what the penalty of sin actually is um, and as, as it relates to death. So we'll talk about that as we go too. But the sixth is going to be abusing the text with words like all, world, every. I doubt that the conversation is really going to go into that. I think that conversation has kind of been exhausted in debates like these. So hopefully we don't really go down that route. But uh, the, the seventh is going to be proof texting. I mean, you got massive proof texting with Calvinism. I like what Kevin Thompson says. He says context and Calvinism never go together. No offense, Matt, but <laughs> I, I think that's true. Uh, you have to have it's basically a proof texting system if you're a Calvinist. It goes together really well. It's logical, but it's 100% a proof texting thing with no context. So you'll see verses drawn out like John 10, John 6, First um, John 2, 2, stuff like that. So the eighth is going to be a false dilemma relating to a universal atonement versus a universal salvation. That is typically you hear the argument, well, if Christ died for everyone, then everyone's got to be saved. So you're a universalist. Um, maybe we'll get into that. So. The, the ninth is going to be a problem as it relates to church history and the council, specifically the Council of Arles. Uh, might be saying that wrong. It's French. Arles, I guess, maybe. They condemned and anathematized uh, the limited atonement um, teaching uh, in four different councils. So that's problematic. Understanding, and then finally 10, is understanding who died on the cross. That's going to relate to the nature and the person of who Jesus is. Maybe we'll be able to draw that out as we go. I don't know. Um, but we'll see. So, so I want to talk about, give a positive presentation for a universal atonement. This may be a different model than what you're familiar with as, as the audience and possibly Matt as well. What really revolutionized my own personal uh, thinking on this is, is listening to both sides of the conversation between the particularist and the, the universal unlimited atonement adherent uh, or the provisionist. So, uh, Scott Smith, uh, Dr. Scott Smith, he's, he's, he got his PhD, um, from Piedmont, but he wrote his dissertation on the atonement and he coined the term. It's called, uh, pananastasism, which essentially means universal resurrection in the end. And this is the model that I've come to, uh, agree with more than any other model that I've seen. I think it, it provides a lot of questions, uh, that, that the uh, particularist, the Calvinist, it has when it comes to the provisionist perspective, and then the provisionist as it relates to the particular side. Now, as far as particular redemption goes, I think that they've got it right as far as seeing 
that the atonement has to actually accomplish what it's intended to do. And that's without regard to the appropriation of the one atoned for within the PSA model, penal substitution atonement model. We'll talk about that as we go as well. I think that you've got that right, Matt. I think the provisionist has the model right where they see there is a difference in the relational side of salvation, but they miss the opportunity to build on the relational side of salvation versus the penal judicial aspects alone. And as we go through this, you guys will be able to follow my argument argument a little more. Uh, but what the eliminated atonement adherent gets right, according to Scott Smith in his dissertation, he says, truly a substitution must ipso facto be in the place of what it substituted for and performing in the stead of that one. Being penal, it is the penalty that must be fully and actually alleviated. Any other view is not really a penal substitutionary atonement, but only at best a promise of such a substitution. Instead, the substitute must actually save from that penalty. If Christ does not save an individual from something, that penalty in the case of penal substitution, then he is not their savior in any sense of the term with respect to that penalty. But he does, and so he is their savior sent from heaven to die that they might live. Here's what the provisionist gets right from my side of the perspective. Uh, they get the universality of the atonement correct, but they, they have problems when they try to set standards of appropriation for that atonement, uh, which does, Matt's correct, where, where he says the provisionist side does actually limit the atonement. I, I think that Matt's incorrect where he says everybody limits the atonement, but uh, maybe this will be something new that he's not heard before. Maybe, maybe, maybe not, though. We'll see. Let's look at an illustration. I think this is uh, something that you see from the, the provisionist side. You see from the particular side as well. But I'd like you to see it from my angle and where I'm coming from with the uh, panastasis model. The illustration is along financial lines, and it'll help clarify between the positions that we've got. So let's assume that 100 is going to refer to all people. The particularist holds that the father's chosen only 20 to save, but they each uh, owe him a dollar, which they cannot pay. Christ chooses to die for them, and his death is sufficient for all, giving Christ $100 spending money. Christ gives the Father $20 to pay off the debt owed only by those chosen. That would be the particular election and atonement, based solely on the limited payment and the Father's pleasure. In contrast, a provisionist argues similarly, but the Christ, rather than giving the Father $20, gives all of it, $100, universal atonement, to pay off the debts of all. From this $100 payment, the father applies 20 to save the 20 chosen. That's particular election as well, which is in no way based on Christ's payment amount, just that there was a payment made, but only on the father's good pleasure and leaving $80 paid, but unapplied. If it's unapplied, then no true substitution of $1 paid for $1 owed was actually made, but rather is only potentially and so Christ's atonement is not substitutionary for all that it was paid for. This illustration shows the issue of double payment from a financial perspective, where God received the payment from Christ, but also exacts it from the individuals. Now, the solution, I think, to, to the problem that we're looking at here is, is going to be that the extent of the atonement, um, the extent was payment of a penalty. So one, if the substitution is made and two, the penalty is paid, then three, the penalty cannot be repaid justly. 
uh, I think that this this leads to a Trinitarian work, a full salvation. Maybe we'll be able to get into that um, here, where you see the Father plans for His Son to be the sacrificed, the sacrifice to pay the penalty of death, to make atonement for the sins of every individual, allowing Him to righteously resurrect all people from their penalty. The Son accomplishes this for His Father. Uh, with his own self-sacrifice to pay the penalty of death, to make atonement for the sins of every individual, allowing the Father to righteously resurrect the Son for this act of obedience and all his fellow humanity from their penalty. The Holy Spirit applies for the Father and the Son the sacrifice of the Son as a payment of the death penalty, due for the sins of every individual, and resurrects the Son as the firstborn of all humanity, who are resurrected out of their penalty of death. Now, this is going to be the universal side of the atonement. That's what it accomplishes. It accomplishes resurrection. Jesus is our resurrection. There would be no resurrection if it weren't for the work of Christ on the atonement. Uh, but you see the relational side of things. That's the penal side. There's there's two sides to this model. And that's, that's extremely important. Uh, the particularist only sees the penal side, the payment side, the application side, it's it's one dimensional. Uh, this is more of an orb shaped, um, uh, multi-dimensional view where faith and the blood application on the personal level is going to be relational, which is what results in uh, full salvation. You can look at that slide uh, if, if you'd like to. I'm, I don't have time to go through it all, uh, but if Matt has questions, we can always come back to it and break it down further. But the key is to get down that there's a penal and a relational side uh, of salvation. The penal side is is um, <clears throat> the payment of Christ, which is the payment of death, uh, where death is results in resurrection. That resurrection is only possible through the atonement of Christ. There would be no resurrection if it weren't for the work of Christ. And that, that obviously is going to apply to the believer and the non-believer like so paul speaks of the resurrection of jesus as well he speaks of that in acts 13 30 17 18 23 6 and 26 8 that resurrection is to an immortal state in acts 13 34 for paul the resurrection it is the assurance to mankind of coming judgment and righteousness and you see that in acts 17 31 so this aspect of Christ's resurrection, it ties into the same eternal resurrection spoken of by Daniel and Jesus, which Paul refers to as the resurrection of the just and the unjust. One minute. Acts 24, 15. Oh, man, I'm going to run out. I'm not going to get through any of this, Donnie. Um, okay, so, so essentially what we're looking at, guys, and you'll see how this carries over into the conditional immortality arguments as well uh, versus eternal conscious torment and what the, the atonement actually accomplishes in dealing with resurrection, but the failure, it brought the legal penalty of physical death and the relational rift of impending wrath against the unclean, unrighteous vessel man had become. So there was a physical ontological need and a personal relational need that had to be resolved. So there's two issues, issues legal and relational, needed a solution for mankind to be made right again and fix the personal ontological and deontological mess that mankind faced the legal penalty had to be fixed by paying the penalty and the relational rift had to be restored by cleansing and regaining perfect righteousness. So the, I'll sum it up this way. There's a cumulative case argument for this. You've got the whole Jewish resurrection background that's seen and understood throughout the Old Testament. It goes through mankind's needs of uh, 
of physical and spiritual issues that need resolved, leading to the cultic atonement, and then Christ's person and position. It goes into the New Testament analysis of Christ's work, his universal associations with the universal resurrection, universal redemption, and then you've got the universal penal substitution that leads to the particular full salvation. And, and I'll sum it up with this and wrap it up this way. I don't have time to get into the, the rest of the slides, but Matt, you'll 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 still be able to use your Calvinist uh, particular uh, redemption model with this. Uh, it'll it would just have to be the, the the relational side of the conversation for the Calvinist. But anyways, that works. Uh, credit to Scott Smith. Thank you so much for all the time that you've spent with me covering and answering all my questions. Um, but we'll get into more of this stuff as we go. I think I'll just have to stop there and turn it over to you, Matt. All right. I appreciate that uh, opening statement, Josh. I appreciate the visuals and uh, we're a little more easy going on the opening statement. So no worries. Um, timer wise, we went just a little bit over 16 minutes, which is completely fine. We'll just make sure that Matt, uh, you get equal time. So you get roughly 16 minutes as well to the audience. We've got a great chat already. I see questions coming in. Just please make sure you're tagging me at standing for truth. That way I don't miss your question. So we're going to hand it over to you, Matt. Uh, just make sure you unmute yourself, brother. And, um, you got 16 minutes whenever you're ready. All right. Well, thanks for that. I just want to let everybody know that I have no animosity towards Josh at all. I'm not going to set him up for anything. I'm not going to attack him. We have far more in common uh, in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I would be glad to go witness with him anytime, evangelize and do all of that. And if he ever has me over at his uh, uh, church preaching, I'd help him out because then he'd have weeks and weeks of cleanup and it would just give him a lot to do and he wouldn't get forward. So that's always a good sign, uh, a good side of things. All right. So uh, if we could just, uh, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you when to share the, the screen. Okay. okay no All problem. right. So I took some notes. Uh, and so you went through some historical stuff. If you've heard me in my debates uh, at all, when people quote church fathers and stuff, I, I kind of dismiss it uh, because uh, I want scripture. I want to know what the scripture says. And um, I'm interested in, in the word of God. For people who listen to me, they know that I quote the scriptures very, very much. Uh, people often say, Matt, you're out of context. And I say, well, what's the context? Well, I don't know, but you're out of context. And, uh, you know, I, I take this very seriously because I represent my Lord and I want to do it properly. You know, he saved me by his grace out of great sin. And, you know, I, I love him and I value the salvation that he's given me. And I want to uh, bring glory to him in the last years of my life. Uh, hopefully by his grace, I'll be able to do that. Um, whether or not, uh, in my opinion, whether or not Reformed theology is anathematized by any councils is irrelevant. I want to know what scripture says, whether or not Patristic said this or that. I want scripture, and that's what I go with. Uh, I'm glad that you affirmed the penal substitutionary atonement uh, model. I think that's the right one to hold. Clearly, I can go through that quite a bit, but I won't. Uh, and you ask, what did the atonement accomplish? Well, it accomplished several things. It, um, it, <clears throat> it accomplished the will of the Father where Jesus was sent to redeem the one given to him by the Father, John 6. 37 through 40 uh, and by the blood of Christ and that shed blood of Christ all who put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will be justified and declared legally righteous Romans 4 5 
the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, the faith that God grants to us, Philippians 1.29. So I affirm that Jesus uh, did what he did on the cross to bring us into fellowship with uh, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And 2 Corinthians 13.14 says our fellowship is with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, we're called into fellowship with our Son, with uh, his Son, Christ Jesus. We can't have this fellowship and this intimacy if our sin is before us. And our sin has been removed. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And um, by, by his shedding blood on the cross, it's not made effectual by my ability, by my wisdom, by my uh, confession, by my baptism, or by my, uh, my belief. The atonement was accomplished on the cross, not dependent upon what I do. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm glad also that you affirm federal headship. Not many people do or don't even know about it. Uh, I had to teach a Church of Christ guy today about federal headship. Uh, and he said we might not go into the issue of the whole world. I think we might uh, because uh, I, I researched you on something you said, and I take umbrage with a, a small comment that you said about what the whole world is. Uh, that's a covenantal aspect that we need to get into probably. And you said Calvinism is the proof texting theology. If I, if I caught that right, if I caught that right, I hope I'm not misrepresenting you, but uh, I would say that Arminianism is a proof texting theology. I would say that Reformed theology just Believe what the scripture says. That's that's my opinion. And when you say things like whosoever, I, we agree. Whoever believes. Boy, I agree with that. John 3.16, except it doesn't say whosoever in the Greek, but in John 3.16, but that's another issue. Um, and so we'll see. I'm going to go through some texts here a little bit uh, and, and lay out what I call a logical, biblical case. And uh, it's not a, lot, a false dilemma to say that Jesus died for everyone and paid their sin debt, that the logical conclusion must be universalism. No, that's, that's a logical question to ask, and we can get into why. Uh, I've written a great deal on universalism on my website, and uh, talk about that. So you affirm the atonement has to actually accomplish what's intended to do. Praise God. I like that. You, you sound pretty reformed to me in a lot of areas. Uh, but you said we missed the relational side of the atonement. Uh, I think that you should read uh, John Owen, uh, for example, uh, and see what relationship with Christ is. Or go to the book Scott's Worthies, where Calvinists would spend eight hours in prayer. And there are stories of Calvinists literally walking in a garden. And there's another figure there. And the witnesses said it was the Lord. There are lots of accounts uh, in the book, The Scots Worthies. Uh, and I've got on another website, I've got uh, documentation from Calvinists who hear the voice of God back in the 16, 1700s. This is not real common. Uh, it's what I hold to because uh, I, I love the word and trust the word. And uh, a lot of people are not aware of these Calvinists and stuff like that, but that's not the main point of the argument. So, what I'm going to do now. Uh, is if you'd share the screen now, Don, uh, Donnie, uh, and I'll show you what my position is, and then I'll go through a little bit of stuff. Got 10 minutes. So there it is. Oh, isn't PowerPoint great? Muy gudo, as I like to say in, in advanced Spanish. Muy gudo. All right. Now, let me move this. Oh, I guess that's it. So this is my position. Jesus legally bore the sins of the elect only when he died on the cross. He only canceled the sin debt of the elect. He did not pay for the sins of everyone who ever lived. That's my position. Now, uh, this is from Wayne Grudem, 
Christ died for particular people, uh, specifically those who would be saved and whom he came to redeem, that he foreknew each one of them individually, Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, and it had them individually in mind in his atoning work. All right, so that's that. Now if we can go to, let's see, I'll go to the next slide. Here's my uh, my approach to this. Sin is breaking the law of God. 1 John 3, 4. This isn't me proof texting, just so you guys know. I didn't proof text to find Calvinism. I was re resisting it, and I have a Master's of Divinity from a Calvinist seminary. Westminster Seminary. And when I graduated with my Master's of Divinity, I did not affirm the five points. So I resisted it. This is not me proof texting anything. As I was reading scripture and having discussions, I gradually came to realize that limited atonement makes more sense. So sin is breaking the law of God, 1 John 3, 4. Therefore, sin is a legal problem. Not only a legal problem, but it's legal because it causes separation between us and God, Isaiah 59, 2, and it brings death, Romans 6, 23. But specifically, sin is breaking the law of God. When there is no law, there is no sin, uh, <clears throat> Romans 5, 13. And Jesus equates sin with legal debt in the prayer that begins with our Father who art in heaven. In Matthew 6, 12, he says, and forgive us our debts. That's a Greek word, ophilema, you know, as we have forgiven our debtors. And then in the parallel of Luke 11, 4, he says, and forgive us our sins from Martia, for he, we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted, ophilema, to us. So right here, it should be without any, any disagreement, Jesus himself, by his own words, by his own teachings, equated sin with legal debt. Sin is legal debt because it's breaking of the law of God. In John 19.30, Jesus says on the cross, it is finished, which is the Greek word to telestai, which has been found at the bottom of, of ancient tax documents signifying a legal debt that had been paid in full. And that's, there's a documentation for that, occasionally used to mean paid in full in secular commercial settings. That's just one of the quotes or the quote locations. Oops, I got a little problem there with that 24. I'd like to edit my, I'm an anal guy when it comes to editing. I missed that one. First Peter 2, 24. And he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross. So what does that mean, that he bore our sin? Well, sin is a legal debt, and legal debts are transferable. So if I take uh, Joshua out to, to lunch, and I forget my wallet, um, and he's so kind, and he says, hey, I'll, you know, I'll pick it up. I go, oh, man, I'm sorry. Uh, so he can pick up my debt. So legal debts are transferable. That's how it works. And in Colossians 2.14, which I'll get into, uh, that's about Jesus having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees uh, against us and which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. We're going to get into Colossians 2.14 here in a little bit. So here it is. Sin is a transgression of, the, of God's law. Jesus equates sin with legal debt. Jesus died on the cross, bearing our sins and made a legal sacrifice for us because he was under the law, Galatians 4, 4, and had to do everything according to the law. He canceled or blotted out, as King James says, the certificate of debt. That's the Greek word kerographon. We'll get into that in a little bit, having nailed to the cross. He, if he paid, if Jesus paid for and canceled a sin debt for every person who ever lived, then no one can go to hell because their sin debt is canceled. It's just gone. If it's canceled, it's gone. If it's paid for, a debt doesn't exist anymore. People will tell me, well, it's got to be applied. That's irrelevant. If a debt is paid for, it's paid for. If I have, if I owe $100 for a TV I bought at an electronic store, and Donnie goes in and pays that for me, and I don't even know about it, 
the canceling of the debt has occurred, whether or not I believe it, whether I acknowledge it, or whether or not I receive it, either way, it's irrelevant. <clears throat> this is a problem with humanistic philosophy that's embedded in Christ, in Christianity, and that's what I call it, is that the efficacy of Christ's work is dependent upon man's action. And this is humanistic philosophy. And I'm not trying to be insulting and say, you know, if my, if uh, Joshua does, I say slimy humanist. No, it's just, it's, it's man-centeredness more than God-centered. That's my opinion. And so you are justified when you believe. Justification occurs by faith, Romans 5.1, Romans 4.5, uh, Romans 3.28. We can get into that. And justification and the sin debt are two different things. The canceling of the sin debt are two different things. So. Let me go uh, into here, Colossians 2.14. Now, here's verse 13 and 14. When you were dead in your transgressions, that's sin, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed to the cross. The certificate of debt was removed at the cross, not when you believe. Notice what Colossians 2.14 says. I've spent 20 minutes, half hour straight with one person at a time. What does it say? What does it say? What does it say? To get them to believe what the word of God says. It was canceled at the cross, not when you believe. We're justified when you believe. That's different. We're not born saved. That's a different issue. Certificate of debt. Hold on. Certificate of debt is the Greek word kerographon. It means a handwritten, it's a handwritten statement, especially a record of financial accounts. Paul the Apostle said that Jesus canceled out the certificate of debt at the cross, the legal indebtedness, the count, record of debt. Sin is a legal debt. We break the law of God. Jesus equated sin with legal debt. Furthermore, 1 Samuel 3.14 <clears throat> There, God speaking, therefore, I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Forever means it includes the sacrifice of Christ. And, of course, Matthew 12, 32, Jesus says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. So here's a question. Did Jesus pay for the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? No. Also, here's uh, one little point that I think is, uh, is worth focusing on a little bit. Propitiation. A lot of people get this wrong and what it means. Uh, it's worth studying this. <clears throat> Turning away of wrath uh, by the offering of a gift. There's a documentation for that is the removal of wrath. Number two, the removal of wrath by the offering of a gift. The Greek word is halasmas and hilasterios. And these are the places where it's found. You can see 1 John 2, 2 and 4, 10, and respectively, Romans 3, 25, Romans 9, 5. Hebrews 9, 5 and above, it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. The word mercy seat is that word, uh, hilasterias. So the mercy seat, that is the place in the Old Testament. Notice what it says in Exodus 25, 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, use that word, helasterion, which comes out of uh, where we get the word propitiation. When the high priest offered that sacrifice and sprinkled the, the mercy seat, the wrath of God was removed. It was not potentially removed. It was removed. That's, it was, this is important. 
So did Jesus actually remove the wrath for every individual who ever lived or not? If people want to tell me, you, you know, propitiation only for our sins, but sins of the whole world, we'll get into the whole world. We'll have to do that. Um, and then he propitiated and he removed the wrath of everybody. Well, then that would be universalism. This is logic applied to scripture. And I believe, this is my opinion, I just believe that people who hold a different position are illogical and inconsistent. And I'm not name calling. I'm not saying, you know, Josh is stupid or Donnie, maybe Donnie, but not Josh. I don't know. But, you know, and so uh, when I see the scriptures and I see this, and I've argued this for 30 years now, uh, the legal aspect of, of the atoning sacrifice of Christ, that he accomplished what it is that the father sent him to do. He redeemed his people. His blood is not wasted. And I'm not insulting anybody. I don't mean that if you believe in universalism, you're, I'm accusing you of wasting blood. No, no, no. I'm not trying to do that. Uh, it's just he knew exactly what he's going to do. And the sins of the elect were transferred to Christ and they were canceled on the cross, Colossians 2.14. If they're canceled for everybody, nobody can go to hell. And if people want to say, well, it has to be affirmed, it has to be resaved. No, it doesn't. Legal debt is not made legally uh, paid up, upon a person's belief. And I got an illustration for that. It's made effective by what Christ did on the cross, not by what we do in our hearts. We are justified when we believe the faith that, that God grants us, Philippians 1.29. This is how it works, I believe, in the issue of the nature of the atonement. I got one minute left, right? Yes. Okay. And so I just wanted to say that, uh, that I hold to this position. And if Josh and I went out open-air preaching, which I've done many times, the only thing I would say differently is Jesus died for sinners. I don't know who God's elect are, as the Bible says, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So my job is to preach that gospel, which is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believed, Romans 1, 16. And so I preach and I teach. I witness a great deal. I always look for opportunities to preach and teach. And I do because... God is a sovereign king who moves. He's the sovereign Lord who moves the heart of the king where he wishes it to go. Proverbs 21, 1. And to pray like a Calvinist is to say, is to say Lord Jesus, please change their heart. Please save them and deliver them from the wrath to come. And that's what I do. And that's what I believe. And there you go. All right. All right. There we go. Perfect timing. Oh, and, perfect. <laughs> and as moderator, I'll take any any name calling you guys got. I, I appreciate well, I it. I got some more for you. <laughs> I was on mute, Matt. I, I was laughing, but I was on mute. So okay. All right. <laughs> uh, let me uh, unshare your screen. And uh, gentlemen, Josh and Matt, that concludes the 16-minute opening statements. We're now moving into the eight-minute uninterrupted rebuttals and uh, i'll do the same thing i'll give you guys a one minute warning just so you know to kind of start wrapping it up uh josh we're going to hand it over to you whenever you're ready just make sure you unmute yourself and i'll start the timer on your first word or i can unmute you for you oh do it one more time josh we clicked it at the same time <laughs> we're That's good hilarious. brother nice man okay all right let me get my notes back up here and I am. You want me to share a screen, Josh? No. Okay. I mean, you can, but I don't want you to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yep. I'm ready. Okay. So I, I think what I'm going to try to do in this rebuttal is uh, just pick out a few of the main points uh, that, that Matt brought up in his opening. I was kind of hoping that we would get into 
the coma man, Matt, but we didn't get to it. So that's all right. We'll, we'll stick with what we've got here. First is uh, what, what did the atonement actually accomplish? And it, just to kind of reiterate to those of you who may not be familiar uh, with what my position is, I want to make this very clear from the very beginning. What the atonement actually accomplished was uh, the payment for the legal penalty for sin. So there's three aspects to my view. Physical death is the legal penalty for sin that the penal substitution resolves. If eternal second death and wrath is believed to be resolved by penal substitution, then it contradicts uh, and or uh, the heresy of universal salvation would arise. It's the legal issue that God has with mankind. So second is going to be the eternal second death wrath or wrath which is only resolved by being righteous. It's only initially accounted righteous this side of the resurrection, but after resurrection with both renewed spirit and spiritual body, we are remade righteous. This is the relation issue God has with mankind. The third part is going to be part of being able to be account accounted righteous or made righteous is also the cleansing aspect with the atonement which is through blood application, not penal substitution. So the penal substitution and the blood application are going to be different. Again, it's penal versus relational. The relational side is something that Matt could adopt, uh, which for the particular redemption side uh, to the elect only, even though I reject that. <laughs> um, but uh, second, I, I think it's important to understand that the penal side is is what results in the in the physical death being re, uh, remedied the, the the cause and curse of adam is remedied and renewed by the death and life of christ and his resurrection being made available to all mankind from which adam touched to which christ redeemed uh then obviously we'll keep going back to that relational side but the second point that matt brought up is those who put their trust in jesus is who he atoned for um, for, I think that's a bit begging the question. I mean, uh, obviously the debate is who, who Jesus atoned for. Um, I, I think the debate is going to be over who the atonement is for, not just those who put their trust in him. Um, and, and to me, that still is a limitation. It's a limitation of the application. So the application is still limited within the particulars model as it is within the provisionalist model. Uh, or if you want to say the Arminian model, they both are are limited to God's elect. Uh, there's just semantics on 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 what it's sufficient for, who's available to, and that sort of thing, which I'm not an Arminian, but I, I do affirm federal, federal headship. I don't affirm the Calvinist idea of federal headship. So this is where we would disagree, Matt. I don't believe in the imputed guilt of Adam. I do I do hold to the consequence of Adam as has reached and touched all mankind as if sin was in a stream and the stream uh, was going downhill. We were all downstream and we were all touched by the effect of what Adam's sin was. That's that's what I believe in federal headship, Adam being our federal head, um, and then Christ being the redeemer, the new federal head of humanity, tasting death for all men. He says, um, we do need to talk about words like world. Um, I, that's fine. I, I, we can go into that. I'm going to come back to that. Um, he, he and I both also agree that sin is a legal debt. Yeah, it is. It's a legal debt. Um, he talks about to telestai. It is finished. The final words of Christ on the cross. 
it is the legal debt that's been paid in full. Hopefully you guys are getting that we're, we're in agreement there. It is paid in full. He bore our sin on the cross. Yes, he did. The certificate of debt was canceled at the cross. Yes, it was. And then he, he went into propitiation, Trinitarian cohesion, and open-air preachings. But I want to talk first um, about the words like world. Let me see if I can pull my notes up here. I want to talk about that for just a second. That's not the right one. Uh, can't figure out what page I'm on. Okay. Um, take, for example, I, I think this is one that Matt uh, does a good job of bringing it up. I think that he's he's lacking in the exegetical side of looking at John 3.16. Um, <laughs> belief is, is first mentioned in verse 12. He re reiterates in context of distinguishing for full salvation in verses 15, 16, and 18. The lack of faith is a hard issue with respect to truth, which would be the light. Uh, for which Jesus is the true light that uh, lights every man that comes into the world. One's deeds reflect where one's faith is in verses 19 through 21. So faith is going to be the particularization point uh, for all people. And those those with faith are not condemned, whereas those <laughs> without are already so. So when we get to words like the world, uh, tone cosmon and, and um verses 16 and 17, it reveals the universally important fact for that particular group that God loved the world, Tone Cosmon. This world, it, it can't merely be the world of the elect. And the reason why is because this following subset reference to all those believing, Pasho Pistion, would then make no sense because all the elect are those believing, making the reference to co-equal and confusing the subset relation. So the result is still that the ones believing will indeed not perish, but have everlasting life. So the group of human individuals, not people groups, who might join those believing in the world of John 3, 16 and 17 would be the universal side of the, God's expressed love for the world. So that would that'd be one point that we might be able to touch on to kind of get started with that conversation on words like all world, whosoever, etc., um, but, but then I think it's important to also look at how much time do I have, Donnie? You have, uh, one minute and 20 seconds. Okay. Um, so I think I'll, I, I'm not going to have time to talk about propitiation and the Trinitarian cohesion. Maybe we'll get time as we go into the, the Q and A side of things, but we'll see. So I'll wrap it up with this final point and the final point that Matt made as well. And, and saying that we would go, we could go open air preaching and we'd preach the gospel to people. This, this for me, um, take for example, I, I, I'm in a men's group at church and we've got Calvinists and, and other people who are not Calvinists and people who really don't have any clue what they believe about the atonement or soteriology in general. Um, but for me, I just asked this question to the guys in there. Uh, one guy claimed to be a Calvinist. And I, I said, this is kind of the dividing line for me when it comes to the gospel and the well-men offer. It, there is abs there's no well-meant offer in Calvinism. Calvinists will say, well, I'll, I'll preach the gospel with you. I'll go out and, and tell the world about Christ and what he's done. But but that's the problem is, is Christ had no intent of saving those he didn't choose in the Calvinist model. So there, when we say, when the Calvinist says they're going to preach the gospel to the world, it, it's just to reach God's elect, uh, mysterious, arbitrary elect that is supposedly going to be saved by the preaching of the gospel. 
But anyway, so I'm, I'm digressing from that. But I think the saddest thing about Calvinism is you cannot say that Jesus loves you and you cannot say that Jesus died for you. You can't say that. You can't say that. And there's no real well-meant offer that that Jesus does love you or died for you in the Calvinist mind. You can't even make the personal application of it because you have no idea if you've been given the evanescent grace that Calvin talks about. Five uh, so that I think that's that's a good way to wrap it up. And uh, I'll turn it back over to Matt. All right. I appreciate that uh, rebuttal there, uh, Josh. That was an eight minute rebuttal. So we're going to hand it over to Matt. Matt, you also have a an eight minute rebuttal whenever you're ready. Uh, if you need to share the screen at all or anything like that, just let me know. And right. uh, go ahead. Floor is yours. All right. Well, here we go. Well, thank you. I appreciate the, uh, the rebuttal. Uh, you asked, what did the atonement accomplish? It accomplished the removal of the sin debt by Christ, Colossians 2.14. It accomplished the cleansing of our sins, 1 John 1.9. It brought us into fellowship with Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.9. It fulfilled the purpose of God the Father who sent the Son, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5, John 6, 37 through 40. It fulfilled prophecy in the, the, uh, the atoning work of Christ as Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me in the cross? And also Isaiah 53 and uh, him doing what he did for sin for us. And you said that uh, Jesus paid the legal penalty for sin. Okay, good. I, I agree. He did. He paid the legal penalty, but he also paid the legal debt. And I noticed you said penalty, but not debt. Since Jesus himself equates sin with legal debt in our Father who art in heaven, Matthew 6, 12, Luke 11, 4. Uh, therefore, we must understand the atonement to deal with legal debt. Not only, okay, not only, but that aspect of, of it is there since limited atonement deals with the legal debt aspect. If that is not dealt with, then um, it really, the whole issue is not understood properly how it needs to be dealt with in this discussion. Um, okay, and uh, you said that begging the question, uh, let me get my notes here, that Jesus atoned, put their faith in Christ. Well, no, it's, it, it is begging the question. Everybody begs the question. Everybody, it's a, it's not a, it's a logical fallacy. It's not a logical fallacy. Everybody begs the question. Everybody has to assume certain positions that they, that are consistent with their worldview, that, that they cannot demonstrate as being necessarily true. That's something we do. I discuss this with atheists all the time, but you see, you got to understand that Philippians 129, God grants that we believe, and I'll get to that in a second. Uh, you said you denied the imputed guilt of Adam. Uh, I think it's a problem biblically. I think you are in error in that. No disrespect meant. But this is what it says in Romans 5.19, as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Were made sinners uh, is in the Greek, the aorist passive indicative. And what that means is the aorist is past tense. Passive means they receive the action. Indicative means it's a statement of fact and actuality. Through one man's disobedience, that's Adam's sin, the many were made sinners. doesn't say they were given the opportunity to sin. It doesn't say they had uh, the propensity to sin. It doesn't say that. It says they were made sinners. So what I believe is they were made sinners because the aorist passive indicative, that's what it's saying. This is original sin, and it's called with dual federal headship. And uh, the reason that Adam had the ability to be our federal head is because Christ is our federal head, and he's the last Adam. And that's first going to 45, I think. Uh, I'm glad to hear that you said uh, sin's a legal debt. Okay, I'm good. And 
that you said that the legal debt was paid in full. I think at this point, when you said that, I think you uh, have shot yourself in the foot. Uh, if it's a legal debt that's paid in full, then the question I'm going to be asking you later, does a legal debt still exist if it's paid? And that's something we'll have to get into. Uh, <clears throat> you said this, this sin debt was canceled at the cross, and uh, that's Colossians 2.14. I'm glad you affirmed that. And there's logical problems if you don't affirm that uh, and that your problem, your position, I believe, okay, no disrespect, meant all sincerity, uh, I believe is inconsistent and illogical and against scripture. And we'll get into these verses uh, more in depth. We cross-examine. Now, um, again, uh, Romans 5.19, the many were made sinners through the one man's disobedience. The many were made sinners. Aorist, passive, indicative. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been has been granted Aorist, passive, indicative. It means an action that was performed by God upon them. For to you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for Christ's sake. See, the thing is, the Bible says God grants that we believe. That's what it says in uh, Philippians 1.29, John 6, 28, 29. Uh, our believing is the work of God. You're born again, not of your own will. John 1, uh, 13, were caused to be born again, 1 Peter 1, 3, as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed, Acts 13, 48, they believed because they're appointed, then we get the issue of regeneration preceding faith, which a lot of uh, non-Calvinists don't understand our position on that. Uh, and so uh, I think the issue here is that we've got to look at is, since we both agree that the sin debt was canceled at the cross, then the question is, if the sin debt is canceled for everybody, how can anybody go to hell? And if the person, if, if Josh were to say, well, it's still got to receive, it's got to be applied. No, it doesn't. It doesn't exist anymore. How can God then send to hell people whose sin debt isn't there? It's gone. And logically, it would be accusing God of sin and unrighteousness to say that what happens here is that he canceled the sin debt and then he punishes them for going to hell for their sin. But the sin debt's canceled. If Jesus bore the sin that everybody ever lived, which I don't believe he did, is I went to First uh, Samuel three fourteen, God speaking. He said, "I swore to the house of Eli that um, that the iniquities of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever." That includes the sacrifice of Christ. Eli's house was not atoned for. Uh, we have in Matthew twelve thirty two, blasphemy the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. It's just not possible to be done that way. And he went into John three sixteen. Just so you know, the Greek there for whosoever uh, is not a hos, which is the Greek word for whoever. It's actually pas ha pastuon, all the believing one. That's all it says. But we don't talk like that in Greek. And uh, then the issue is, uh, yes, a well, well men offer. Of course, it's a well men offer for everyone who believe. But God's going to grant that they believe. Now, you may take umbrage with that, but that's what the scripture says. He grants that they believe. So I, that's what I got to believe. And he said, no intent of saving those who didn't choose. That's correct. God didn't intend to save them. And if you think that's a problem, uh, all we got to do is go to Mark 4, 10, 11, and 12. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the 12, began uh, asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you, Jesus says, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables so that... While seeing, they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might re, be, uh, return and be forgiven. So Jesus is speaking in parables so people will not be forgiven. He specifically says at Mark 4, 10 through 12, God is the sovereign king. Our sovereignty is not resting in our hearts. 
because we are not the ones who decide our own salvation. God mm. does. Thank you. In Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we be holy and blameless. God the Father chose us, the elect, in Christ before the foundation of the world. And Jesus says he came to redeem those whom the Father had given him. And that's John 6, 37 through 40. And that's it. And you're right. I can't say Jesus died for you, but I can, can say you need to believe and trust in Christ because he died for sinners. And I don't know how it works. I don't know how God ordains what he does. But I'll tell you this. I've done nine years of prison ministry. I've done thousands and thousands of hours of witnessing online. I've done uh, written books. I'm on radio. I witness and evangelize because it is the power of God to salvation. I don't put all my my uh, faith in a five-point basket. I put it in the Lord Jesus Christ who commands me to preach and teach. And the rest of it I believe because I teach. I believe that's what scripture says. Thank you. All right. I appreciate that rebuttal there. Matt. Uh, that concludes the opening statements and the rebuttals. We are now moving into the open discussion slash cross-examination. We're going to keep it kind of more free-flowing and uh, it's going to be broken up into one 30-minute round where Josh is going to kind of lead the way asking Matt questions pertaining to the topic. And then we're going to give Matt uh, 30 minutes to do the same. Uh, I'll do a lot of the... Uh, <laughs> I... Yeah, go ahead. Use the restroom. Yes. Yes. I'll, I'll make it no worries. No. <laughs> no worries. I, I, I'm I feel your pain. <laughs> hey, I'm 65. You right. gotta hold on. Okay, bring it back. Take your time. Take your time. I always say we should have intermissions uh, in these debates because it's not always easy going two, three hours, sometimes four hours lately, actually, without going to the bathroom once. So uh, that being said, as Matt is gone just for a minute or two, I do want to thank everybody in the chat. We've got a great chat uh, tonight, over 80 people right now with a ton of great questions coming in. So I'm going to be doing a lot of the moderating from backstage. I will be here, but I will be organizing uh, questions that come in. So please make sure you're tagging me at Standing for Truth. So a couple reminders, uh, the fun continues this Thursday. We will be back at it uh, for an epic debate on the Genesis flood and Noah's Ark. Fact or fiction, this is actually the round two debate between uh, Jackson Rowe and Kent Hovind. They debated last month. Uh, I highly recommend this debate. Is there evidence for human evolution? So please uh, check that out. Next month, we have our much anticipated debate between Chris Date and Dr. Shabir Ali. Does the New Testament teach that Jesus is God? That is on uh, January 4th, I believe. So that is going to be an epic debate. And uh, here we go. Sorry about that. Oh, no worries. No worries. I completely understand. My, my total <laughs> depravity is manifesting upon my physical body. <laughs> I appreciate it. So no worries. I just went over a couple reminders and kind of the format for the discussion. So uh, two brothers here, both uh, cordial and respectful. So I doubt I'm going to have to do really any heavy moderating. But of course, I will as needed. Uh, I was saying I'll do a lot of the moderating uh, backstage. So I am here. I'm just gathering questions from the audience. So enough from me. Uh, Josh, Matt, the floor is yours. We'll hand it over to you, Josh, to uh, start your cross exam. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you. All right. Um, so, Matt, I think a good way to start with this. Where did my questions go? They all just disappeared. That's not good. Okay. Got them back. Just tell me I'm right and we can move on. That's all. That's <laughs> I can't start. do that unless God decreed <laughs> <Bait> it. Date over. <laughs> okay. All right. 
All right. So my, my first question is, can you uh, do me a favor and just kind of explain what you think my position is so that I can make sure we're on the same page there? I'm not exactly sure what your position is. Okay. Uh, because you talked about the atonement as a relationship to the issue of the uh, resurrection. And you affirm yeah. penal substitutionary atonement, which necessitates that Christ took our place legally yeah. and suffered a, yeah. a penalty. And that's yeah. correct. Yep. Uh, I agree with that. But uh, I do take a little umbrage with that since he the penalty would be eternal damnation. And there's universalist mm -hmm. arguments counter to that, which we get in some nuances, which you don't have time to hear. Yeah. So what I, I can say is he, Jesus just canceled our sin debt at the cross, among other right. things. That's my yep. position. But I don't okay. know. I, I'm sorry. I, you know, if you tell me what it is, I'll write it out right here so I can understand yeah. it better. Um, well, maybe we can do that. Uh, uh, maybe I don't know. Maybe you can ask me that as we go. Basically, there's a there's a it's multidimensional. It's it's penal versus relational. The re relational side is full salvation. The penal side is resurrection. Uh, yeah, that's what I kind of was hearing. Yeah, and you went to Acts seventeen thirty one, but the resurrection is the issue that is that validates. A lot of people don't know that validates the atonement. I'm okay. It's your time. Sorry. It does. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, all right. Let's see. Um, now this is. It, it's kind of a random thing. It's not really in the line of questions that I had, but it's something that I, I think might be relevant. Um, when I was driving over here, this thought popped in my head. I'm like, oh, I've got to ask Matt. This might be a good way to start. So um, there's a couple of questions. One, the first question is, as, as it relates to the atonement, you don't believe that there's either provision nor atonement for the non-elect. Is that correct? Legal atonement with the sin bearing, no, but Any they atonement. benefit from the atonement. Any atonement? No, they benefit from the atonement, I would say. Okay, what benefit do they have? They're allowed to breathe, to live, and that goes straight to judgment because the elect are still being brought out of the fallen world as time progresses. And the atonement guarantees the elect will be brought in, and it takes time for them to come in. So the, the unbelievers suffer, okay. not suffer, but uh, have the benefit of son and okay. families and stuff like that. Well, such. I wouldn't, I'm not going to draw that out. Um, the second is, but they actually, they couldn't actually believe the gospel no matter what circumstance, even if it was presented to them. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. Total depravity. We can talk about that sometime if you want. Now, when we talk about uh, preaching the gospel to the world, and you talked about going out and street preaching together, mm -hmm. where do you think the well-meant offer is for the non-elect? Can you show me in the Bible where it's, well, I can't ask you a question. Sorry about that. Oh, it's my apologist part of me. Yeah. Uh, I don't see any place in the Bible where it says it necessitates a well-meant offer. But the gospel goes to the whole world. The gospel, what? I'm sorry, I didn't hear But that. the gospel goes to the whole world? Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, I won't draw that out. We'll probably get into that in your cross X. Uh, so how would that, how, okay. So you don't think that there is a well-meant offer towards the non-elect? You don't even think the gospel goes to the non-elect? No, I didn't say that. Uh, okay. I just, that the phrase, a lot of people adopt phrases that are not really biblical. It's certainly Trinitarian, the word, and, you know, it's biblical. We know, and it's that, but when it says the well-meant offer, uh, I say, show me scripture that says that it's a mm -hmm. well-meant offer gotcha. to everybody. And then what does well-meant mean? Yeah. And so it's, it's ambiguous. I stay away from that phrase. That's just me. Um, so what benefit is the gospel for the non-elect? What kind of, what is the gospel for the non-elect? Yeah. The same it is for the elect. What is it? Jesus died and rose from the dead three days, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Brethren, make known to you the gospel by which you're saved. Do you believe that Christ died, was buried, and resurrected? That's the gospel. Okay, but you said if you believe. 
Yeah, if you believe. And that's for the non-elect? Anybody. We don't know how God, we don't know who God elects. I hope you believe in election because you should. And that's a big Not in a Calvinist that. election, but yeah, I do. Well, I believe in the biblical one. On which one you? So do I, is. Matt. <laughs> we'll have a dis- we can discuss it later. Yeah, you know? maybe we can do a Bible study together. Ah, oh, there you go. I think <laughs> just a friendly conversation would be good. Yeah. We'll do a lot of things, but uh, the elect means to be chosen, and so God has chosen us, and so He did that in Christ, federal headship before the foundation of the world. He didn't choose us because of some quality in us, but because of what's in Him. Yeah. Okay, but I'm still going back to you said uh, you were when you you were laying out the gospel. You, you said that Christ died for you, and that's directed towards. But and you're directing that towards the non-elect. Oh no, I would say when I go evangelize, you open air to say Christ died for sinners. Yeah, and you are sinners, and you need to believe, and you need to repent and come to faith yeah. in Jesus Christ. I don't know how God works His election okay. and, and drawing. Oh, I so I guess it's a roundabout way to ask. Um, does the gospel go to the non-elect in any way, shape, or form? Is it meant sure. to? It's a proclamation, and it's a judgment upon them because they rightfully belong in hell. The elect, so the, rightfully the, the, the gospel, in hell, so. meaning good news, is the good news is you're damned for hell eternally. I thought you knew Calvinism. <laughs> Because the good news is that you don't have to follow the law to be saved, that we're justified by faith. That's what the Uengelia is, that is found in, oh. in Christ and all who would believe. See, here's the thing I teach. I don't me. think anybody had to follow the law to be saved, though. The Jews thought that they had to. They became self-righteous. Yeah. But um, I forget my point. No big deal. Go ahead. Uh, okay. Right. Okay. So you believe in the penal substitution model, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is the penalty for sin? Uh, separation from God, Isaiah 59, 2. Okay. And, and physical death. And physical death. Okay. Does one, does one stay dead due to the penalty of sin once they die? Uh, I'm not trying to be difficult or take up your time for question, but I don't understand what you mean by the term death in this context. Physical, spiritual separation. What? Okay. So their soul's been separated from their body like Genesis 35, 18. That's the physical death. The soul continues on after exi- yeah. after physical death, yes. Okay, so does one stay physically dead after they die due to the penalty of sin? Does one stay dead uh, due temporarily? To the, 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 the emphasis this, this, is on the penalty. The physical body dies. Their body, their soul yeah. is separated from them. The wicked go to a bad place. The, the good <clears throat> go to a good place. At the resurrection, they're all reunited with their bodies. The wicked go to judgment, cast out into hell. Uh, Revelation 14, 11, yeah. 2010. Yeah. And you're saying that the penalty is physical death. And they, they, once they're physically dead, there has to be a remedy for resurrection. Is that correct? A remedy for resurrection. Remedy is something that's bad. Now it's a remedy for the good thing of resurrection. So I'm confused by what you mean. There has to be a solution for the penalty of sin, which is death, in order for somebody to be resurrected. Is that correct? It's the solution. I'm right typing it out. The solution for for the penalty of death? Yeah. The solution for the penalty of Physical death? Yes. Are you for physical resurrection? The solution. It's a non sequitur to me uh, to say it's a solution for something that's granted to us 
in Christ's resurrection. And a solution means there's a problem. Okay, so well, let me, re- let me rephrase it. Um, if, if the penalty of sin is death, and it, it's, it's what you, if with Adam is your federal head, and everyone dies physically, there's a, there's a, a sin debt, as you've, you've laid out. In reference to the unbelievers, why would there be any resurrection at all if it didn't have anything to do with the resurrection of Christ? The resurrection of Christ is a demonstration that he has the right to judge them since God made us as a whole. Well, I'm not person. talking about his judgment, though. I don't mean to interrupt you. You brought up Acts 17.31, which says that through the resurrection, is demonstrated he has the right to judge them. So he's the first fruits of all creation, First or yeah. Colossians 1.15. So he will be the one to people be raised. That's what, it's, that's what they were designed to be, a spirit and a body, the, judge are, the judged are going to be in their spirit and their body and eternally damned in that state. Okay, so um, let me, I'm going to keep going down this this line of questioning. Um, let's see. Do you believe that Satan had uh, power over physical death? Uh, see, when, okay, I'm not being difficult. Please understand. Uh, when people talk, ask questions like that, I get a little confused. Power over physical death. God is when he grants that he has any power at all, like Job, you can or cannot do this. So any power that Satan has is limited or granted by God. Yeah. Um, So so in Hebrews 2.14, it says that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Okay. Yeah. And that the devil is the one who brought sin in into actuality and then through Adam into the world. And yeah, he would destroy the works of the devil with death. Sure. I don't have any problem with that. Okay. So my question is for the limited atonement, which I don't think that you've answered yet. I think you understand like where I'm going in this line of questioning. Not really. Relates- <clears throat> no, sorry. I'm not being difficult. <clears throat> I, honest, I'm, I'm not. I'm not being. I, I, I'm that way. I think this way. It's like yeah. I, you have ma- I different meanings in the words, and how they relate together is a little confusing to me. So, so, so when when Jesus died, and he led captivity captive, comes up victorious from the grave, is resurrected, and he holds mm-hmm. the keys to death and hell. Yeah. What do you think that means? Well, he led captive. There's different theories about that, about what Jesus did in the interim between his death and resurrection. And get into that, but uh, that he, I believe, he went to the place, the holding place of the good, and then ascended into heaven with them yeah. because the atonement had had occurred. That's what I and, think. Happened. And you said the penalty of sin was what? Uh, God says in Genesis two seventeen, the day that you eat of the fruit, you'll die, yeah. and it's physical death as well as separation from God. Isaiah fifty nine yeah. two. So when Christ came up victorious and held the keys to death and hell, do you think that that has anything to do? With the resurrection of the non-believer sure so that would be okay now explain to me what the the relationship of that is to the atonement please I'll how, keep the it rela- open-ended. how the relation is between what and the atonement what we just talked about christ coming up victorious with the keys to death and hell the devil uh holding uh, having the power over death yeah. and and then the non-believer being resurrected and not being able to be resurrected until the resurrection of Christ. That's a multifaceted question, so I'm not sure. Well, basically, I mean, you know what I'm asking. I'm saying, like, what's the no, relationship no, 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 with no, the no, resurrection no. of Christ to the non-believer being resurrected? 
the reason he was able to leave captive a host of captives out of Ephesians 4.8 is because of the atonement by which their sin had been atoned for. He's able to move them into the, I believe, into the heavenly I'm talking realm. about the non-believer. And so the non-believer, it, that they are going to be resurrected because of Christ's resurrection later. This yeah. is the demonstration that he has the right to judge them, Acts 17.31. Right. And the the reason that they can be resurrected is because of what? The resurrection of Christ. Right. And that that has in, what does the resurrection of Christ have to do with the atonement? Without the resurrection, the atonement is not justified or accepted by the Father. There's a prophecy out of the Old Testament, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, I believe it was 16, that uh, he would not let his son see corruption. And so it's a prophecy dealing with the acceptance of the sacrifice of Christ who committed no sin, 1 Peter 2.22. Okay, um, so let me let me rephrase it again. If physical death is the penalty for sin, how do you see the freedom from that death and the resurrection of the unjust related to the atonement of Christ? Do you say that again? Physical death is the penalty of sin. The non-believer is freed from that penalty of sin and resurrection. How do you see that related to the atonement so the of Christ? The unbeliever is freed from the penalty of sin and resurrection, you said. It doesn't make sense. How could be freed from the penalty of sin and the resurrection. Resurrection is not a penalty. Resurrection is something guaranteed, and yet sin is the is the, their action and is a judgment because of their sin. So I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, I know you're not. I know you're not trying to be difficult. I have um, Asperger's too. I, I don't know. know if you know that. I have Asperger's, and I am before the Lord. I'm not trying to be difficult. I'm trying to understand, but I think very critically, very logically. I could help you formulate the sentences better, the questions better, <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> And I apologize. If you want just a few minutes, I, that's fine because I'm not, I don't want anybody to think no I'm being difficult. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we agree that the penalty for sin is death. Yeah. Everyone dies, believers and yeah. non-believers. Yes. Uh, the argument in Jesus' day was, was about resurrection. Was there a resurrection? The Sadducees and the Pharisees, some right. said there was, some said there wasn't. As it relates to the work of Christ, when he came victorious out of the grave he was resurrected he held the keys to death and hell he paid the penalty of sin which was death non-believers are resurrected they're given life and resurrection are, are we I, following together? So yes, far? yes, 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 yes. The penalty of sin, which is death, is something that uh, I think needs to be discussed off air when we get into it. Because what does it mean to have the penalty of sin? Sin is separation of God. But, but death is mentioned spiritually as well as physically. So when you say he paid the penalty of, of sin, the penalty was paid for. If he paid for the penalty of separation from God from everybody who ever lived, then why would anybody who ever lived uh, be saved? I, I, I'm thinking this, and then I'm going, why are you asking the question, the penalty of sin and death? He paid for everybody, but that would mean then that that's universalism. I know you don't affirm that. So I'm confused on, on how you're wording stuff. So. Hey, Matt, no hard feelings. I, you know what? This is something that I've wrestled with for months and months and months. I can see why. <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated. I mean, you and I are in agreement, the penal substitution model. I, I think what you're struggling with is, is you see whatever the atonement accomplished, it secures station. Is that right? 
it, it accomplished, you know, what God wanted Christ to accomplish by the Father. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so so we see. We, I, I, what I'm getting at is the penalty. Okay, let me move on. In John six forty four, mm-hmm. I know the verse. Yeah. In John six forty four, no man can come to me except the Father, which has sent me, draw him, mm-hmm. and I will raise him up at the last day. Mm-hmm. Um, what I what I find the Calvinists doing quite often in this verse is saying, "Whoever is drawn is who will be raised up at the last day." Uh, but what I see is those who are drawn can come to Christ, but if you're not drawn, you can't come to Christ. So what I see from the Calvinist um, dilemma is is you have to show somehow that the drawing of the Father is limited. And I don't know a single Calvinist who has been able to show a limitation on the drawing. So uh, maybe you could help me with that. John 644. Yeah, you cannot come to me unless the Father draws you. The come yeah. to me would be the ones who are elect because they're the ones who are going to believe. Yeah, that's kind of a question, eternal. though. That's scripture. No, Acts it's 13, not. <laughs> yes, it is. Acts thirteen forty eight. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Yeah. And God grants that we believe. Philippians one twenty nine. And our believing is the work of God. John oh, six twenty nine. And we're let's born stick with again, John six. Our, Hang, we can go through yeah. each one of those when but, it comes to your time, if you want. But you see, but, the thing is, I'm just telling you that all who are drawn are the ones that God draws. Now, there's a, a level. There's two levels of drawing. One, he could try and draw all people, which raises problem for your, your position. No, or he could draw the elect into salvation. There could be a generic drawing for their condemnation. Mm, but that's that's yeah. legit. Romans 9, 9 to 23. Oh, absolutely. Or we could talk about the drawing of, of the uh, individuals because later in John 6, 65, he says, you cannot come to me unless it's granted to you from the Father. So who's he talking about? That's, oh, that's not my, oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> so, so <you're, laughs> uh, it, I'm, what I'm asking is in John 6, 44, how do you come out of this particular passage, even in John 6 as a whole? How do you how, how do you take John 6 as a whole and see any limitation on who is drawn by the Father? I don't know who the Father draws. <clears throat> you can't come till you can't come unless the Father draws you. He doesn't say he draws all people, does it? Yeah, he does. That Where? that same exact word is used in John 12 32. 32. There we go. Yeah, he said he'll draw men to himself. He lifted up from the earth, he'll draw men to himself. All men means all people groups. We'll get into the word issue mm. world. Because yeah. <laughs> well, Jesus was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15, 24. He was not sent to the world. Yeah. But that's proof <clears throat> texting to use that as a verse for the atonement. Because the goal of that was to corporately reach the world. John 3. Yeah, all the elect that were in the world. Absolutely. Oh, Matt, that doesn't say that. No, it says he'll draw men. Who are the all men? I can show you from Scripture where the word all can only mean the elect. I can show it to you in Scripture. Yeah. We don't have time here, but I can. I got a big study on it. I don't think you can. I can. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, I can. I'm okay. absolutely convinced I can. Yep. <clears throat> um, so, let, okay. So in John 60, 44, your answer is that there's a limitation on the drawing because it's uh, God only draws the elect. Well, we don't know. I don't know how God draws or who he draws or how it works. I don't know. Okay, that. but in John 6, 44, it, you don't believe that those who are drawn are raised up. Is that is that that's not right, is it? The ones who are drawn, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you to come to right. Christ as a belief in Christ. They're resurrected. Right. That's because that's what she says in John 6, 37 through 40. 
But okay, but my question is in in 644 do you think those who are raised up are those who are drawn or those who come as a result of the drawing? Those who are raised up are the ones who are given by the Father to the Son. The will right. of the Father is that Jesus look, not lose any and raise them up, whoever that group is called the all. Yeah. So, so who is able to come to Christ? The ones that the Father grants that they come to Christ. John six sixty five. Mm. You cannot come to me unless the Father grants it to you. That's what he says. Just a few verses later, 20 verses later. Okay. Um, let's go to Romans chapter five. I'd like to. Oh, yes. That more, but I love Romans five. Me too. You do? I do. Oh, okay. yeah. You're predestined to like it. I love but... the whole Bible. You do? I do. Well, there's some parts I don't like. I don't like Colossians three because when I read it, I feel bad. Okay. In Romans chapter five. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I will read verse 12. And I, I think, uh, uh, yeah, there is in 17. Okay. So in verse 12, he says, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. Who's the all there? All people. All people, every individual who are in okay. Adam federal headship, his representative issue. Yes. Are all people in Adam's federal headship? Adam is the federal head of all people. Okay. So that would answer my question. In, in Romans 5, 17, it says, for if by one man's offense, we agreed that would be Adam, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one. Jesus Christ. So judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. That's a very unfortunate translation of Romans 5.18. It's so unfortunate oh. that I would say that it's very inaccurate. <laughs> well, I know Romans 5.18 very well. I've been studying it off and on for about 30 years, 35 years. Seriously. Um, okay. So as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through the righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So oh, my yeah. question is, my question is, it, um, as, as, as the offense of Adam reached all men, yes. how is it that, at, that the grace of, of God through, uh, the atonement of Christ doesn't also reach all men with him being the last Adam? Which verse are you referring to in Romans 5? Because I, I need to focus on that. I'm trying to ask you the questions, but you mean Romans 5.18? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> it's a bad translation. You go with a bad translation, you're going to get a problem. The correct translation is, uh, <clears throat> as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. So also through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. You'll find that in Romans 5.18, roughly 12 through the end of the chapter, you'll find two groups, both called the all and the many. And they're represented this way and is parallel with first Corinthians 15, 22 in Adam, all die in Christ, all shall be made alive. And so it's the federal heads of Adam and Jesus. And that's what's going on here. I could do a large Bible study on this Romans 5, 18. I could show you what the translations are wrong in that because of what it actually says in the Greek. And it's a big thing, but uh, the grace of God can expound as it just as it does in Matthew 5, 43 through 48. 
when it says that God said, uh, let the sun shine the good and the rain on the good and the bad. That's the grace of God. It's unmerited. It's unf- uh, it, it's, that's just what it is. And he loves all people that way, Matthew 5:48. Absolutely, no problem there. But what he's talking about here is a theological disposition between the two federal heads of Adam and Christ and who each represents. That's what's going on in this pericope. Okay, so you think that there's a difference between who Adam represented and who Christ represents? Absolutely. Okay. And how do you get that out of Romans 5.18? Because it says actually in Romans 5.18, through one transgression, and there's no verb, condemnation to all men. Now, if you go to Romans 5.19, through his transgression, the many were made sinners, the heiress passive indicative, which means that they were made sinners mm-hmm. by Adam's sin. That's what it says. And that's all right. That's everybody ever lived because in yeah. Adam all die, First Corinthians 15, 22. So that in Adam is a term of federal headship. This is in Christ is a term of federal headship. So it says in sentence A and sentence B, sentence A, through one transgression, condemnation to all men. So also through one act of righteousness, justification of life to all men. The verb is not existing in the Greek. Because sentence right. A controls or governs <clears throat> sentence B because the sentence B says in like manner or so also. So in other words, it's in respect of verse A. We know that the sin of Adam resulted in condemnation to all people. We know that. That's what it is. You take the verb, drop it down in sentence B, therefore resulted in justification of life. This is why the ESV will say led to, and the King James just butchers it. The free gift came. The free (laughs) gift is not there in the Greek at all. Yeah, it's, so it's because right. of what the theology is actually teaching right there. It's why people get this wrong. What it actually is teaching is that the resurrection, excuse me, that all who are justified can only be the elect. Mm, no, I, I would disagree with that, but we'd have to go into a grammatical conversation about that. And I don't think we have time for that. But what I would oh, ask is some other time. God, love it. Maybe we could just do a debate on Romans five sometime or John six. But OK, we, we just so, have a discussion and call each other names. It'd be fun. Ah. Uh, Okay, so my question is, um, my question is, you're saying that many will be made sinners, that's everybody, and then you say many will be made righteous, that's only the elect. Romans now, 5, 18, doesn't say will no, be 19. made. 19, for as through one uh, man's disobedience, that many were made sinners, aorist right. passive. It, yep. it means that all who are in Adam were made sinners right. by his action. Romans five nineteen. that's original sin right there. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, um, the follow-up clause in that uh, being contrasted with Adam's disobedience is is the right is the obedience of Christ also being referenced as the many. But you're making Correct. a limitation on the many here, and where you're not making a many uh, limitation on the many with Adam. Why is that? Because oh, I'm reading the sentences and and context. I, as I said, the many and the all are both used of two different groups. The many and all, as in everybody, and the many and not as everybody, and the all as everybody, and the all not as everybody. Now, that may sound a little odd, but I've taught this many times over the decades, and that's what is going on there. And that we can have a nice discussion. Yeah. Parse it out. We can go through, grammar, you know, arrange it. I can show you. So um, what would you say to someone who was reading John Calvin and he cross-references the many back to Isaiah 53, saying that the many is actually the all individuals and not all um, not all the elect. Which and the many? So, well, here, let me, I'll read this quote. He says, uh, both verses use the word many. Calvin in both places stresses that the many. 
which verse? Romans 5, 19? 19. Yeah. 19, thank you. Sorry. Okay. Um, so the many for whom Christ died really means all. In both places, it refers to uh, Romans 5 is in which the many is, is the many, but it also means all, Calvin says. So he, he also goes into... Um, he goes into his conversation on Mark 14, 14, where he says it doesn't mean part of the world only, but the whole human race, 14, 24. He says it's incontestable that Christ came for the expiation of the sins of the whole world concerning the eternal pre predestination of God. Um, and when he says the sin of the world, he extends this kindness indiscriminately to the whole human race. And that's in reference to John 1, 29. What would you say to someone who's reading John Calvin and sees the universality of the atonement there? I'd say, I don't read John Calvin, and I don't know why, you know, if you want to read him, fine, but I'm concerned with what the scripture says. That's what I say. The only time I've read John Calvin is in seminary. I, and uh, Luther, I yeah. read I read in a Lutheran college. So uh, my love is scripture. Scripture. I'll, I'll read others if I have to, but what does scripture now, say? Now, as far as, as far as, um, as far as the content of what Calvin says, how would you respond to this? And in, in Isaiah 53, 12, he says, I followed the ordinary interpretation that he bore the sin of the many, though we might without impropriety consider the Hebrew word rabim to denote great and noble. And thus the contrast would be more complete that Christ, while he was ranked among the transgressors, transgressors became surety for every one of the most excellent of the earth and suffered in the room of those who had the highest rank in the world. I leave this to the judge of the readers, yet I approve of the ordinary reading that he alone bore the punishment of many because on him was laid the guilt of the whole world. Well, uh, the whole world, what does John Calvin mean by that? I've not studied him, so I can't tell you. And the many that's used here in, in Isaiah 53, 12 is the same kind of wording that Paul the Apostle uses. You always got to remember the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. False religious systems and cults reverse that procedure. We don't ignore the Old Testament, but it's the New Testament that that interprets the old. So the many here, we have to go to the New Testament, see what Paul the Apostle is specifically teaching. And I would love to do that. Okay, good. Let me, I want to get back to this. Okay, so now I, I think that as it as it's related to limited atonement, um, pause there for just a sec. Donnie, how much time do we have? I'm here. <laughs> We've got, um, actually, no, the, the discussion's going great. So, um, you know, we it do is. have a, a minute left till we reach the 30 minute oh, mark. <laughs> so uh, unless you guys, um, Want an no, extra couple it. minutes to kind of finish your your questioning? Uh, I, I think that's a good good place to leave off there and just turn it over to Matt. Okay, okay, yeah, let's uh, let's do that. Um, fantastic discussion so far, guys. Uh, lively chat tonight as well. Uh, we've got a ton of great questions for the audience Q and A. So let me restart the um, the timer here. Thirty minutes, uh, Matt. It is your uh, turn to kind of lead the way and ask Josh some questions. Go ahead. Let me timer on too, so I can get the roughly the. There we go. Okay. All right. So Josh, you know, I, I want to apologize. There was no intention of any way of giving a hard time or not understanding things. Oh, just so I'm you thick know. Thick skinned Matt. I know. Oh, really? Well, you're ugly too. Okay. How's that? <laughs> I got you. <laughs> right back at you. Well, in my case, it'd be troll. <laughs> uh, 
but so yeah, it's uh, it's just what it is. Uh, I think different levels. I've d- discussed this so many times. Like, what do you mean by that? What do you mean? And I, I have to get yeah. down to that so I understand a person's it. position. So, and you can do the same to me. And I'll, um, I'll mock you for it or something like that if you want. All right. All right. So, uh, so is sin a legal debt? Yes. Okay. Did Jesus cancel the legal debt? Yes. Did he cancel the legal debt of everyone who ever lived? Yes. Then how can anybody go to hell if their sin debt's canceled? Because there's two sides of salvation. One being the, the legal penalty of sin is death, which was remedied through the resurrection of Christ, which is part of the atonement. That's the that's the penal side. The relational side is 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 faith. I think that's where the Calvinist position looks at it as sort of a transaction. And uh, salvation is a lot more than that. Well, faith is the means by which the imputed righteousness of Christ is granted to us. And that's by faith. Romans 5. Correct. One and uh, Romans three twenty eight. So that's a different issue. We're talking about the, the debt of sin because in First Timothy or First Peter two twenty four, he bore our sin in his body in the cross, and the sin that's canceled on the cross, Colossians two fourteen. So right. sin is what everybody's committed, right? That's right. And so God judges us for our sins, right? Correct. So if there's no sin, can anybody be judged? No. So did he cancel and remove all people's sin debt? Yes. And then why does anybody go to hell? It's a relational aspect. Okay. It's a separation from God. You're not part of his family. Uh, well, that's irrelevant. Now you're, what you're saying here is that there's, there's no sin debt. So there's no yeah. sin debt. You're saying, but it's relational. Yeah. Well, so there's no sin debt. Is not judgment from God a legal judgment based on the law? It is. Yeah. So sin is breaking the law. Yep. Jesus was made under the law. Yes. Jesus never broke the law. No. And so the law, 613 commandments, represented by love God, love your neighbor, right? Correct. So all this is legal, right? And God says in Genesis 2.17, the day that you eat of this, you will die, the fruit, okay? So this is legal. Law is right there. Yeah. Now, what the Bible says in Romans 5.13, when there is no law, sin is not imputed. Correct. All right. So when there is no, so we don't have any, if the law is gone, okay, which that's another issue because we've died with Christ or free from the law, but that's another thing. Right. <clears throat> Whole another avenue to, to show this. Next so you're telling me then, <clears throat> you're telling me then that Jesus canceled the sin debt and removed a person's sin. Then please tell me on what basis does someone go to hell if there is no sin held to their account? Yeah, it, you don't go to hell because of your sin that's been paid. The legal penalty is, has been paid by Christ. It was bore on the cross. It was nailed to the cross with him. Your certificate of debt has been paid. Uh, it's the relational side. You're saved by grace through faith. That's 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 what puts you into Christ. So you don't go to hell because of your sin. Yeah, that's right. Wow. So sin, which is let's talk relational sin, which is an affront to the holiness of God. Yeah, it's an insult to his character. It's what necessitated the blood sacrifice of Christ to remove our sin, right? right? And you're saying then that Jesus removed everybody's sin and judgment is legal to send people to hell. And yet there's no sin and therefore there can be no judgment because there is no sin. And now you're saying that God sent people to hell. How's that not unrighteous according yeah. to the law? Yeah, it's it's not unrighteous because it's it's a relational aspect. See, this is the righteous side that the, the Calvinist doesn't doesn't get. And I don't mean you in particular, right? I'm just saying that the the system. 
the, the system makes it of a transaction, like salvation is a transaction. Salvation is not just a transaction. When, when we talk about the penalty that you mentioned in Genesis 2.17 with Adam, that legal penalty was declared that in this day you will die when you eat thereof. That, that was the day that, that they were legally declared to die. So the death is, is what, what Jesus came to reconcile the world to himself. And that was through the atonement of Christ and, and the resurrection of Christ, which secures the resurrection for the believing and the non-believing. What, what the Calvinist fails to uh, account for is that you see the transaction of Christ on the cross as securing uh, faith, which would be um, given to the elect through regeneration prior to faith, uh, which, which is problematic because... That's the relational side of the conversation that, that I'm putting forward is, okay. is the legal penalty has been paid. The relational side is is what would condemn somebody to hell. Yeah, the relational side is, you've got to understand, is ambiguous. When you do a relation, you're talking about something that you have to impose upon Scripture to say it's relational. And then we're going to get into the issues. What I need to see from Scripture yeah. is exactly what verse would say what it is you're saying. Okay. When you talk about the relational side, you haven't quoted any Scripture except referencing Genesis two seventeen. No, that's good. Okay. So yeah, let me look at let me let me break that down a little bit. Do you have a verse that shows that uh, that people can still go to hell uh, even though their sin doesn't exist anymore, but because it's a relational problem? Uh, no, I don't have a verse that says. Uh, because your sin is a relational, your sin has been paid for, and because it's a relational problem, you're you're you can still go to hell. Maybe I'm misunderstanding your position, because you you hold of the penal substitution that the sin debt's canceled, and yet you say that they go to hell because of a relational problem. So I'm just probably understanding what that is. Yeah. Can you tell me what that what that means, Dan? The re yeah. exact, as precisely as you can, relational okay. problem with scripture um, if you got it. Okay, so in Romans three twenty five b through twenty six. Let me see if I can get there. Last one. There's a Mormon. Uh, when whom God displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because of the forbearance of God. He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he be yeah. just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So okay. let me talk about this real quick. Sure. What this what, what these two verses are concluding is that um, these three means would support a larger purpose related to how the two aspects of righteousness apart from law are revealed. You see that in verses 21 and 22. So the righteousness 25 and 26. Okay. I was making a reference to okay. um, the two aspects of righteousness, mm -hmm. but okay. So, so righteousness comes through a combination of redemption by propitiation, uh, propitiation, faith of the believer and cleansing by the blood which corrects all mankind's penal, relational, and ontological issues. So you were talking about how can God be righteous or unrighteous and in, in sending someone to hell. I, I think that these factors, these th this factors into how God would be righteous in passing over sins due to that penal judgment and physical death, which you see in, in verse 25, the parason. Uh, and you can see that with him passing over sin in order to be friends with sinner, that would be the satisfaction of the penalty, which was planned to be paid by Christ's redemption. So hopefully, I don't know if that's answering your question, but I mean, I no. can go on. Is relational, in your understanding, a legal problem? No. 
Huh. Is relational, if it's not a legal problem, what kind of a problem is it? Uh, it's it's a relational problem. I mean, what does that mean? That means that okay. So take for instance in in John chapter one, verse twelve. Relational. It says, "But but as many as received him, mm-hmm. to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name." So we're not of the flesh or the will of God or the will of man, but of God. Yes. Correct. Yeah. So. So that's the relational side. You have to become a son of God. You're not a son of God. You're talking about relational. Okay. You talk about relational legally or relation family or relation. uh, He's not going to spank you. What? What do you mean by (laughs) relation? Seriously, I'm trying to understand your your issue. Yeah. So so the relational side of salvation is is whether or not um, you've you've had the the righteousness of Christ imputed to you if you're seen in Christ if if you're um if you've been cleansed by the blood through appropriation of faith um that that would be the relational side the faith side is is literally putting the fiducia it's it's putting your faith into the finished work and person and promise of Christ you said the relational side of salvation is whether or not righteousness of Christ's work is imputed to you Right? Yeah. Use the word impute. Impute is a legal term. It has to do with uh, saying, I can impute you $5 I'm writing you a check. Imputation is purely legal. So our sins were imputed to Christ, First Peter 2.24. He bore our sin in his body on the cross. The righteousness of Christ is granted to us by faith, Romans 5.1. Romans 3.28 was a righteousness that's not our own, Philippians 3.9, but it's obtained by faith. So you're talking about a legal aspect. The relational side of salvation is now legal? It, it, it's a double imputation, Matt. Double imputation means our sin is imputed to Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us. Uh, yep. So relational side of salvation is whether or not righteousness of Christ's work is imputed to you. But imputation is legal. It's purely legal. That's what to it means to impute. Yeah. Okay. So, but okay. So your your emphasis on on the legal side would be this: the sin being imputed to Christ. That's that's the first part of it, which is the penal side. The second part of it, the relational side, is uh, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to us. That's legal. To impute his righteousness, his righteousness is according to the law because he's made under the law, Galatians 4, 4. He never sinned, 1 Peter 2, 22. Therefore, we have a righteousness that's not our own, Philippians 3, 9. So Jesus fulfilled all that was required in the law, Matthew 3, 15, he, and Matthew 5, 17. He did all of this. So uh, this is why I was confused earlier about relational, because I, I believe I'm confused, not able to understand it, is because the terms relational is not the same thing as impute, but you're trying to relate them to the same way. I think you're doing it because you're confused. No disrespect, man. I, 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 please understand that, man. I, I, okay. But I just don't think you're consistent. And you well, may say it about me, and that's fine. But here's the thing. So uh, you said relational side of salvation is whether or not the righteousness of Christ is imputed. So the relational side of salvation is whether or not you have his righteousness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and that's that's right. We agree that that's by faith. The righteous, righteous is by faith. That we're imputed. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's legal. Okay. Okay. So um, that's legal. Let's take a step back here. So you believe that relationship with God is based on a legal imputation of righteousness to us from uh, from God, Philippians three nine. Hang on. Uh, can you say that again? That. No, you believe that. Relational aspect is due to the legal counting of Christ's righteousness 
to us, which is by faith. Having therefore been justified by faith, okay, without the works of the law, Romans 3.28, justification is a legal declaration of righteousness. You and I, we, you know, Josh, brother, you and I are sinners, okay? I'm a bigger sinner than you. I've got a lot more experience of being a sinner. And so we both need the righteousness of God, Philippians 3.9, imputed to us, reckoned to our account. Yeah. And that's what we need. So you and I have that by faith. We disagree on this, but these particulars, but you're a brother in Christ. Love you, man. But so you're imputed with righteousness as I am by faith. That's what it means. That's what you think the relational side is. Right? I, I'm not sure what um, what the point is that you're trying to make. I'm trying to understand your position. So oh. <laughs> you're, what you're, I think you're confusing the legal as, aspect with the relational side. The relational side is more like, hey, dude, you know, Josh, I'll be in your, your neck of the woods, man. You want to grab a cup of coffee? You go, yeah, sure. And we, that's a good relationship. But uh, if I say to you, look, man, I broke your lamp. I, here's 10 bucks, man. I write you a check and, and give that to you. That's an imputation of legality. So well, Jesus bore our sin. Okay. So I got another question for you then. Okay. In 1 Samuel 3.14, God is speaking. He says, I've sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquities of Eli's house will not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Did Jesus yeah. bear the sins of Eli's house? Yes, he did. Okay. Even though God said that he would not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> so there's a couple of things to do to to look at here contextually and 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 i don't i think this is a good example of of <laughs> no offense against you matt but where the calvinist doesn't doesn't take into into account the context of a passage you know the animal sacrifices that were there in the sacrificial system yes right. mm-hmm yeah. So it says forever, which I already addressed in my opening statement, that yeah. uh, be not atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Is the sacrifice of Jesus a sacrifice? Yes, it is. Does forever include Jesus? It, it, forever is a reference to those animal sacrifices in context. And specifically, it's a reference to these the, uh, these boys who uh, uh, transgressed against God that made him so mad that that he would he would make a declaration like that. So because so Christ, because 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 the death of Christ cleanses us from all sin. It was it was a ref. It's a it's a it's a reference. I mean, where I had a I had a good line against that, Matt. I can't remember oh, what it was. Man, well, when you think of it, just interrupt me and say, "Hey, here's that line again." Okay, that's <laughs> fine. Um, well, I disagree with you uh, because I think you have to uh, interpret it in a way that's consistent with your presuppositions. I'm not. I'm just saying. He says offering or sacrifice forever. Yeah, I know it's an animal sacrifices. And do you think God knew that it was animal sacrifices? Why would he not yeah. say your sacrifices in the temple, your sac your blood sacrifices, they were not going to work. Yours. No, he didn't say that. I will not. Uh, he says the iniquities of Eli's house will not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Yeah. God said this. If he only meant the animal sacrifices, why did he say animal uh sacrifice or offering forever yeah well for okay so here's something to consider one the blood the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin hebrews 9 hebrews 10 yep so as as it's related to the atonement the good news of the sacrifice of christ is that it can uh but but as it's related to uh what you're referencing why didn't he say um, well, uh, the sacrifice of, of Christ could. Well, you have to understand that in this passage in First Samuel, they didn't have an understanding 
of of the sacrifice of Christ yet. So so God as far did. as the atonement was concerned, um, yeah, that there wasn't an atonement provided for them until Christ, and that's that's the good news of the gospel. Is there? There's a lot of people out there who may think that Christ didn't die for them, uh, but the good news, the gospel, is that Christ did die for them. And where you think that you're not savable, you are savable because Christ made it available to all men. Well, that's another issue we could talk about. Okay, let's go to. I disagree with you about First Samuel three fourteen. Read the context. Everybody come up with your own understanding. Bless me, the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. Matthew twelve thirty two. Did Jesus pay for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Yes. then why is it an unforgivable sin? Um, where, does it say it's an unforgivable sin? Uh, he does not have forgiveness in this age or the age to come. Yeah. So forgiveness okay. is the relational side. It's not a penal side. That's yes, the conversation. Is. No, but... Well, we can go on. Yes okay, but no, contextually, right? Matt, let me, let me answer this question, though. Contextually, in reference to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, um, it, as it's related to... Uh, the work of Christ, they were saying that uh, he was performing these miracles uh, by, of the spirit of Belial, the devil. Right. So, so as it's related to that, that that reference to the ages to come would would also be a reference to the the presence of Christ on earth in the second coming of Christ, with with the work that he's going to do. Then that that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not going to be forgiven. What we we don't. What we don't need is, is atonement for our sin anymore because Christ did that. That's finished. What we need is the relational side, which is forgiveness. It's application of, of the blood of Christ to us personally through faith. And as it's related to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and it won't be forgiven. That's, that's the relational side. Well, is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit an eternal sin? Sure. Okay. So Jesus bore an eternal sin that can't be forgiven. Right. All sin is eternal. Okay. Uh, so this eternal sin is what he called at Ma in Mark three twenty nine. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. That phrase, eternal sin, as far as I'm aware of, is never referenced anything else other than blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which we can talk about what it is and why it is in relation to his baptism, another topic. So you're saying that Jesus paid for a sin that's not forgivable. Whoever commits it cannot be forgiven. So you're saying he... he no, no. I didn't he say he, he paid for a sin that's not forgivable. He paid he, he paid for sin. The, the forgiveness is, is, a, is a relational side. So, yeah, that would... And, well, it, it, but sin is legal. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is a great sin, and yet it cannot be forgiven, right? As far as I understand, yeah. Okay, it cannot be forgiven, and Jesus... Now, here's the, the logical problem. Jesus canceled a sin that can't be forgiven. Mm, How do you do that from your perspective? That's a good question. I'll have to come, I'll have to come back and look at that. I, I, I don't think I've looked at that one, but I'm not sure what the point would be. But I'll, well, it's, it's a logical problem for you. If Jesus bore this, every sin of every person who ever lived, yet there's sin that if you commit, you can't, I don't believe you can, well, not believe you can. Of course, you know, you're a man of God. But I mean, these are the people from the Old Testament. That's what I meant by you can't commit it. Only they could commit it. I believe that. But that's another yeah. issue. So here's the thing. The Holy Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. 
never has forgiven, never has forgiveness, whoever commits it, it cannot be forgiven, never does it. He says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. So that's an unforgivable sin. It's an eternal sin. Now, you're, you're saying, ah, Jesus canceled that sin debt, but it's, it's not forgivable. Or wait, see, no, wait a minute, it is forgivable. No, it's not forgivable. It either is or isn't. If it's not forgivable, why would Jesus bear that sin in his body in the cross and cancel it? If it's canceled, it has to be forgivable. Because it's canceled for somebody who committed it, that means by your logic, they're forgivable. But Jesus says it's not forgivable. So then how is it that he paid for that sin? Um, I I really don't have a good answer for that, Matt, but okay. I'd be more than happy to get back to you on it. I think you should. I think it's a serious issue. It's a serious problem. When you start looking at the legality of what's going on, sin is not only a legal problem, it's a relational problem. And, and I don't get to talk about this very often, but when you sin, you upset the relationship, the fellowship, the intimacy, the koinonia that we have with God. Even as a Christian, when we do this, that, that that's affected. That's what it means to have a relational thing. And this relationship can only be through the person work of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 1 9, God is faithful through whom you're called into fellowship, koinonia, with his son Christ Jesus. This can only be done through the sacrifice of Christ. And if we're imputed with righteousness of God, Philippians 3 9, that we have by faith, Romans 5 1. So we have that, and now we're in a proper relationship with God because the legal problem has been dealt with, the legal problem being sin. So what you, you <clears throat> so you've admitted Jesus paid for everyone's sins, which means the, the debt is canceled. And yet, we'll go back around this. This is the problem I have with universal atonement. It's a logical problem, and it's a biblical problem. How can God be righteous to judge people for hell which is because of sin. When relationship with what you said has rights, Christ's righteousness imputed to them, which is legal. So considering what you just said, how is it that God, who from your perspective canceled all the sin debt, canceled all of it, even blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you'd have to say, which isn't forgivable. And yet at the same time, God sends people to hell for sin debt that's gone. And you say relationship with what you need, but that's by imputation, which is legal. So I think you're stuck. Maybe you can get out of that. Try that. No. Okay. So I, I think that um, you kind of went in a roundabout way to kind of make a case against an answer I don't have on the unforgivable sin, which is, I mean, it's a controversial passage in the first place. So I'm not sure that that's really a defeater, but I'm more than happy to look into it. If it is a defeater, then it's a defeater, but but I I, I don't think it is. So and I'm not really sure that you completely understand my position altogether. Probably not, but, but I'm gaining more understanding of it. No, Relational side of salvation is whether or not the righteousness of Christ's work is imputed to you. That's what you said. That's legal. Hey, can you say that again? Uh, Relational side of salvation <laughs> is whether or not the righteousness, the righteousness of Christ's work is imputed to you. I read that back to you. You said, yes, that's correct. If you want yeah. to change it, that's fine. I'll modify it. But that's what you said. So you're saying the relational side is legal. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not saying the relational side is legal. Impute is legal. Well, Impute it may be illegal. <laughs> okay, so you're building a, a whole argument off of whether whether or not imputation is is a legal term. If, it is a legal term. The, uh, but we're the imputation of of our sin to Christ would be part of the legal penalty that was paid by Christ. The imputation of the righteousness of Christ isn't it is maybe a legal term, but it's a relational application. Of course it is, but it's legal. 
Sin but is that, not imputed. That doesn't make it, but I, I, okay, so I think the, the hang-up is here. You're saying, well, if the legal penalty was paid, then the legal um, application of the righteousness of Christ is the payment for that. And, no, no, and no. I, no. To impute sure, means yeah. a legal action. So sin is not imputed when there is no law, Romans 5.13. Impute is a legal term. And you're saying that the relational side of salvation is whether or not the righteousness of Christ's work is imputed to you. That's legal. You can't get out of that. Okay, you need to study that. There's no disrespect, no condescension, but you need to study that because that's what it is. All right. And if you're going to say that it's not legal, you got a problem. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Justified by faith is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Philippians 3.9 says we have a righteousness that's not our own, but a righteousness is obtained from God by faith. So this is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. See, what the atonement does is it strips our sin away. And by faith, we have righteousness. So in a sense, when, when he strips our sin away, we're naked. We need to be clothed. We're clothed in righteousness, the righteousness of God, Philippians 3, 9. This is what's going on. And so uh, Colossians 2, 14 says he canceled the certificate of debt at the cross, which you agree with. I'm surprised you do, and I, I'm grateful you do. But you have a problem because maybe you could answer the, or try and respond to this. That What you're saying is the relational side is also the same as the legal side because you're saying it's Christ's work imputed. That's correct. It is imputed, but it's imputed by faith. Romans 5.1, Romans 3.28, Romans 4.5. By faith, Galatians 2.16, 2.21. By faith, not by any works. All right. So then that would mean that we receive the righteousness of Christ legally, right? If it's imputed, right? Um, I, I feel like you're kind of straining it in that here. I mean, this is critical. This is critical because you're the, you're the one who's related uh, who said relationship deals with imputation, but imputation is legal. If we have the righteousness of God, Philippians 3, 9, it's legal. Sin is a legal problem. You said the sin debt was canceled at the cross. I grant that, and I agree with that. And now you're saying God sends people to hell because they don't have a, a right relationship. But relationship is by legal act of imputation. So you're, you're contradicting yourself. You're saying the sin debt uh, is canceled at the cross. Mm -hmm. And God can still send you to hell because you don't have the legally right trans, uh, imputation of Christ's righteousness to you. Well, if it's canceled, we, we, we know that anybody who believes is, believes because God grants it to them, Philippians 1.29. That's, that's, what, that's what Paul says. And so once they believe, they're imputed with the righteousness of God, Philippians 3.9. So there's no mishits here. So your, your position is problematic. I think that, I mean, if we, even if we say that it's accounted, I'm not sure that the righteous, the biblical term of imputation regarding the imputation of the righteousness of Christ is, is that phraseology that you're using. If, if we're really trying to be that technical about it. Well, I, I what I like to do is go to the, what the word actually says, um, and to elegeo, and it's number 1677 in Greek. And so what I can do is sit here, 1677, and see how many times that particular word is used. And it's used in Romans 5, 13, and Philippi, uh, Philemon. He says, uh, but if you if he has wronged you in any way, 
charge it to my account, impute it yeah. to my account. So it's, it, it, and sin is not imputed when there is no law. And so imputation is a legal thing. I think you're misapplying the terms and you're confusing the terms because you understand legality. I, I Matt, you, you just did a, you just gave a reference for imputation of sin. What? You just gave a reference in Romans five thirteen for imputation. There's not, the law, imp, there's sin is not imputed when there's no law. Right. Because law is legal. Imputation is right. legal. If there is no legal setting, there can't be an imputation because by definition to impute is legal. If their law is gone, there's another thing, Romans 7, 4, we haven't even got into. And Romans 6, 6 and Romans 6, 8, those who died with Christ are free from the law, Romans 7, 4. The law has no jurisdiction over us, so in a sense, we can't sin anymore. That's an interesting play on words we could look at. But we got about a minute left, and I, you know, I think we're about done there. Uh, I think you got some stuff to look at. I'm not sure. I, Gosh, I just... I, I don't I, you're building a case off of off the word imputation, which I I mean, I get it. You used it. What you used it. You said I was trying to understand your position. You said is yeah. you said relational side of salvation is whether or not the righteousness of Christ's work is imputed to you like three times, four times. I read it. You said, yeah, now you're saying the relational side is a legal action. If you take no, look, I'm saying that I'm saying the relational side is illegal. It's not a transaction. The the transaction of the righteousness of Christ is is not a transaction. It's 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 appropriated through faith. It's an accounting. It's accounted through faith. It's accounted as, right. as righteousness. The righteousness so, of God is received by faith, by faith right. only. Right. I just don't, I'm not. I don't. I don't. I think you're just trying too hard here. On no, point. I'm not. Well, if anything, I'm not trying really hard. I'm being easy, <laughs> okay? I'm being easy. I could really hammer on you about oh. this, okay? Well, hammer away. All right. You don't call me slick for nothing, you know. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Um, man, that hour flew by. I can't believe that was an hour. an hour? Yeah. <laughs> an hour on just the discussion. I mean, we're over two hours on... All on right. the debate, so that was a, a fantastic cross exam, uh, an hour worth of of questions. So, uh, All right. fantastic. So what do we do? That's yeah, it. We, do, we wrestle <laughs> <laughs> a post debate uh, wrestling match. So, <laughs> um, yeah, that was a great discussion. Lots of great points, questions, and discussion Matt, on both. <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. Man, no, I that's fine. Go ahead. I Josh, you're the boss me. around here, so. <laughs> Just declare victory and look, and uh, that's it. I'm going to go home, boss. yeah. Um, I, I would say this, Matt. You've brought up some good points. I, I run a bulldozer for a living. I'm doing my best to study these things out. I think that this model is is the most consistent that I see. I see that you guys, the Calvinist side, has very, very good points as it relates to uh, an effectual atonement, something that the with it being, especially within the penal substitution model. I think there's something that you guys really get right. I think the provisionist has really good points in seeing it's universal and, and they see there has to be some relational application. Um, but I, I'm not sure uh, if the, you really have something on, on the, um, the wording of the impu imputation of the righteousness of Christ being legal and related to the penalty of death. Maybe you have something there. I'd be more than happy to look at it and study it yeah, further and, and follow up with you. But. Yeah, just uh, yeah, Matt Slick at gmail.com. You can uh, 
you can just say, hey, you know, or I'll give yeah. you my cell number. We could just talk sometime. Sounds you know? good. And as long as you don't you want to give it away, to me well, now over the air. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why did I it's think it's all hey, phone numbers right now live in front of the audience? Yeah, that's yeah. Since I've been swatted, pursued, threatened with death, threatened with lawsuits, uh, called the cops. I mean, and that's just from the Baptists. <laughs> hey, that's just rewards in the next life, uh, Matt. Oh so, man. Well, brothers, uh, great discussion. Incredibly easy to moderate. You guys were uh, cordial, sophisticated. Great discussion. Don't humble. Don't forget humble. Humble, sophisticated, humble cordial, <laughs> all the above. So, uh, and we've got we've had a lively chat with so many great questions. So we're gonna have a good Q and A. But we do have the uh, closing statement. So Matt, Josh, if there's anything uh, that you still kind of want to address, anything left hanging, uh, you know, we do have five minutes to kind of wrap things up, wrap up our thoughts and points. Again, great job to the both of you. I'm 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 very impressed with this debate. So that being said, Josh, uh, you kicked us off with your opening statement. Uh, my good sure. man. So let's hand it to you for your five minute closing. Actually, before sure. I do, there's a bunch of people asking if there are going to be any after shows tonight. Oh, I'll do one. Okay. You're invited, uh, Josh. I would, but I've got to be up in five minutes. So. <laughs> Come on, Josh. Just pull an all nighter. No, I'm just kidding. You really don't want to hear from me, anyways. Matt's just going to correct me on my imputation wording and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I was reading something Veckel said. We yes. went back a long way. Uh, Veckel, what does Veckel know? He's he's you know he's got issues. Yeah. You know, uh, I've seen <laughs> all that faster Veckel. than his brain. So anyway. <laughs> Veckel, I appreciate the super chat. Yeah, he says that heretic Matt. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know Veckel, he is a fellow. He's a Calvinist, so he, he he's not uh, you know just kind of throwing yeah. that out there at them. We, we, go back. we go we, we go way back, and I love Veckel. He's awesome. Yeah, he we is. love Veckel here too. Yeah, he's great. We've had some great discussions. Hope you didn't hear me say that because then he'll think I like him. Dang it! <laughs> Dang it! Those inside words came out. <laughs> forget you heard that there, Veckel. Yeah, forget so, that, Veckel. <laughs> uh, all right, awesome. So it looks like Matt Slick to answer a number of questions in the chat. Yes, there will be an after show, at least one that we know yes. of currently on and, uh, Matt Slick's channel. So, And I'll, I'll yeah. put mine uh, link at, on uh, carnivore.org forward slash calendar, and I'll put okay. the after show link information there. So that's where you have to go to like five minutes after we're done. I'm going to use the restroom here pretty soon. <laughs> yes. I've been drinking a lot of this stuff. I'm trying to lose weight. And so I'm drinking a lot of liquid instead of no eating. worries. No, we got to stay hydrated. So <laughs> we'll have another bathroom break. Uh, how about okay. right after the closing statements? If, if you want that long. Well, how about how about you, right now? You, you start. If he goes first, I can listen while I politely. Okay, yeah. Okay. We got it. Problem okay. solved. So Josh, we're going to hand it over to you. Uh, five minutes for your closing yeah. statement. Go ahead. Uh, can I share my screen? Oh, am I sharing my screen now? No, no. But I can I can share it whenever you're whenever you want me to. Oh. Yeah, can you share it for me? There you go. Oh, not that. Okay. Oh. <laughs> All right. So um, I, let me start by saying this. I think that Matt has has brought up some really good points. I don't have this all ironed out. Um, but what I do see is, is I see cons some consistency within the Calvinist model on the atonement. I see a lot more inconsistency with uh, pretty much all of Calvinism. Um, but... But as it relates to the atonement, I think that they have a really good point. Uh, if you adopt a penal substitution model, that if it is a is a, if it is an actual substitution, it actually has to substitute without any condition for appropriation. 
Um, and I, I do think the provisionalist has a very good point. They see the universality of the atonement. They just mm, kind of miss the appropriation side of the effectuality of the atonement. Uh, but they do see the relational side that there has to be some appropriation by faith. Um, one, one thing that I see the Calvinist uh, doing, and I think that we saw tonight, is, is there's too much of this rigid transaction for salvation within this model. It just doesn't do it for me. It's like, well, you owe something, Christ paid something, now you're going to heaven. Without, any, without much of a discussion of faith in, in the relationship side, of salvation. It's, I think that's really missing. And I, I think you Calvinists are missing out on this. I, I think that there's so many things that are missing within the well-meant offer of the gospel. I mean, you, you really have a problem if you can't, if you can't, I know this is, is beat to death with arguments against Calvinism, but you really, you have a problem if you can't see some random person on the street and tell them, that God loves you, Jesus died for you, and he wants to spend an eternity with you. Um, that's, that is the gospel in, in its simplest form, understanding that. Um, you can get into the deity of Christ and all of those things in addition to it, but in, in essence, the beauty of the gospel is, is the love of God that's been provided for all of us. Um, so let, let's talk about, to kind of sum up my position, if you guys haven't been too clear on it. it. It's taken a long time for me to get here. Um, but but here's what I see. I see uh, this question being asked, what if the payment of the penalty only secures part of what is necessary for full salvation? The payment of Christ is the purchase of our person and body over death, giving all of mankind victory over death and resurrection and immortality. I think that's something that Matt really struggled to find an answer for is is why do why does the non-believer see life at all after death? Why is there any freedom from that death if not for the atonement and resurrection of Christ? They're certainly not doing it on their own power. Christ has the power over death and hell. And 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 he he's obviously exercising the freedom of his sovereignty to raise the non-believer to life, expressing his love and the immortality that has been given to this new body to live forever and designed to live forever to undo what Adam did in the garden. That's why the Bible starts in a garden in fellowship with, with his son and ends in, in a garden in fellowship with his son. And that's what we've been designed for. This, this fallen world is not something that God designed from some super lapsarian uh, philosophical argument that he intended for the fall of man. He intended to, to send the majority of mankind to hell without any provision, without his love, without an option for the brokenness that we are as human beings. You can see this in the Old Testament through the death and the sprinkling of blood. You see it all throughout the theme of resurrection. Mankind wants to know, am I going to live forever? How can I live forever? Paul asks, oh, wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? And the only answer is Christ. Death brings the death of Christ brought the propitiation pain, the just penalty for our sins, and thereby giving physical life to all men and the resurrection to come. We didn't get into that in 1 Corinthians 15 or 1 John 2, 2. I would have loved to have talked about that. Um, there's so much to have in this conversation. I was I, 
I wrote up about 30 pages of notes and I probably got through three of them. But I, it goes to say the blood of the blood cleansing and bringing righteousness to all who believe is reconciling those in right standing with God to all who trust and rest in Christ's work. So you see both parts are required for eternal life and salvation. One is being universal to all men in the finished work of Christ to, to pay the penalty of sin, which is physical death, to raise us to life, and the other particular only to those who believe. So you can still be a Calvinist and have particular salvation if you want. You can still be an Arminian and have a, um, a election from a, a, an Arminian perspective. But it, at least we got to get one thing right. The atonement of Christ purchased all of mankind, and you can see that in the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of all mankind. So thank you, Matt. You brought up some really good points. I'm looking forward to diving into this uh, legal argument that you've brought up uh, on the imputation from uh, being a penal side of, of sin to the penal side of the righteousness of Christ. I'm not sure. Maybe you have something there, but I need to look into it more. So I appreciate the challenges you brought up against that. And I know that it's new to you too. So anyways, I appreciate the conversation and thanks to you who are still tuned in. Thanks, Donnie, for having me. It's been a good time. So my pleasure. My pleasure. I appreciate the great discussion, great debate, and I appreciate the concluding statement. Uh, so Matt, we're going to hand it over to you. Um, you got between five and six minutes for a, uh, concluding statement. And then we'll get into some of these uh, really good questions that we have actually. Matt, just make sure. You, oh, you're good. Six minutes. Okay. All right. Can we get the timer going? Okay. Well, first of all, Josh, I want to thank you for a, a really polite discussion. And I really appreciate that. And um, no animosity to you whatsoever. I just want you to know. And uh, we have far more in common in Christ who died for our sins and has redeemed us uh, by his grace. And that's far more important than, than this. And it just would tell you a few days ago, a week or so ago, I was on a, a discord, which is a, a place of, of, uh, of discussions. I'm kind of well known there and I go there and talk and I went and gave the gospel uh, to some unbelievers uh, that they need to trust in Christ, believe in Christ. I don't know how God does it. I don't know how God works all of it. I know that the more we preach, the more people are apparently elect. And I can get into that. And I was attacked by people from my Calvinism. They say, why would you dare preach the gospel if, uh, you know, God predestines? And the thing I found interesting was that the haters, and that's what I call them, the haters were more upset that I believed in God's sovereignty and that he only died for the elect than they were for the power of the preaching of that gospel message. And it really bothered me that, uh, and it reminded me what the Bible, Jesus said in the last days, people's love will go cold. And, um, you know, they attacked and he, Josh, you didn't do that, of course, but uh, you know, it's just, it's just something that's interesting is that the gospel is not as powerful as people apparently want to make it to be. That what's really more important is your Calvinism or your Arminianism. Let's talk about that because you're a, you know, and then they attack. And so it didn't happen here. I'm grateful for that, but that does kind of, of, of happen. Now, uh, I think there's a problem uh, with any position that would say that Jesus legally canceled the sin debt of our sin, and yet we go to hell. Now, he's going to say, well, we don't go to hell for our sin, but because of a relationship. Well, but, you know, the relationship side of salvation is whether or not righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. If it's not imputed, that means you don't have faith. 
and we're by faith where the righteousness of God is imputed, Romans 5.1. But God grants that we have faith, Philippians 1.29. Why doesn't he grant it to everybody? You know, and as I brought up in Mark 4.10 through 12, Jesus speaks in parables so people will not be saved. And incidentally, uh, God does not love everybody equally. This is a mistake a lot of people make. He hates all who do iniquity, Psalm 5.5, 5, Psalm 11.5. You can go to Romans 9.13. He hated Jacob. Jacob, I loved Esau. I hated not based on anything that they would do. And you can read that and go through that sometime. And God, you got to understand that God uh, hates people who do sin. There's a, a, a separation. And yet he also is loving. And this gets more complicated to discuss these simultaneous realities within the nature of God. People often will say, quote, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. That means he doesn't hate anybody. Yes, he does. Uh, and Jesus spoke in parables so people will not be saved. And these are things that all relate to the work of God and the style of God and the motive of God. And so, um, I'll get my notes here. I was going to say you, yeah, you said it called us a rigid transaction that faith is missed and relational is missed. Uh, no, it's not. I talk about the relationship with Christ that is a, accomplished through the atoning work and that by faith, the faith that God grants to us, Philippians 1.29, we're then in this relationship in koinonia with, with Christ, uh, Philippians 1, oh, excuse me, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 1.9. That's, that's not accurate, I wouldn't say. And uh, uh, and I already went over the issue of, of God loving everybody, relationship with the atonement of, and resurrection. See, I wasn't struggling to find an answer. I, that, that's not the case. I was struggling to understand your position, and that's what I was struggling with. And that could be my fault, but uh, but I didn't think your position was consistent, and the way you're using words was confusing to me, and I wanted to answer accurately. So that was the problem I was struggling with. And I do have Asperger's, and sometimes that does get in the way with things like that. Not to lay that, uh, that blame on that, but eh, sometimes. Uh, and I'm not, just so you know, I'm not infra or superlapsarian. I, I have problems with that. And um, you say, talk about the the problem with God intending to send people, majority of people to hell. Well, what if he does? Well, that is his intention. Who are you to say back to God? The thing molded will not save me. The molder, why did you make me like this? Uh, you know, and there's issues there. That That's another issue to discuss. Uh, mankind wants to know, am I going to live forever? No, that's, uh, you don't find that in the scripture. You do find Romans 3, 10, 11, and 12 that no one seeks for God, no one does good. And this is what the Bible is talking about there. So uh, I think one of the major issues here is the issue of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It, it, sin is a legal thing, a legal problem, 1 John 3, 4. Jesus bore our sin in his body, 1 Peter 2, 24. And if he canceled the sin debt at the cross, Colossians 2, 14, then if he canceled all sin debt, then the issue of the Holy Spirit uh, being blasphemed against uh, would have to have been canceled also, but that would mean it would be forgivable. But Jesus said it's not forgivable. That's a serious problem with that view and not with my view. Uh, Jesus didn't bear that sin. No problem. And so what we have here in my view is that God mm -hmm. elected from eternity who would be saved, give them to the son. Jesus came to redeem those who were given him by the father, John 6, 37 through 40. He bore their sin because Jesus said in John 10, many sheep. And there's logic issues with, with that. We can go from different positions. And that Jesus is the one who canceled their sin debt. And that here's the good part. And that we can believe and also all we got to do. And yes, it is up to us. That's a whole other thing about regeneration and, and, and uh, faith. But we are supposed to believe. And when we do, you know, we have that relationship with Christ. We have that intimacy with him. And and I'm grateful for that. And it's because of the blood of Christ where he canceled my sin debt. Didn't make it possible. He did it. And he guarantees my relationship with him forever. And I thank him for that. Amen.
All right. I appreciate it, Matt. Uh, thank you for that six minute concluding statement. Again, uh, brothers Josh and Matt, thank you for a fantastic, memorable discussion. Uh, very cordial debate. So that being said, let's get into about three hours worth of questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <no sweat. laughs> uh, just kidding. What well, I'll do is push up so he's good and awake uh, running a bulldozer. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, I don't need to be uh, too tired out there in front of a bulldozer anytime soon. <laughs> what, what job is it that you run? I used to have a friend who ran a bulldozer. He did it at a dump of all places. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those guys don't get paid enough. No, they don't. But oh, yeah. yeah, we do excavating um, for like okay. housing additions and stuff. Cool. I like it. Yeah, we definitely want you alert, Josh, for that job. Yeah, so thanks, John. No worries. What I'll do is is put a timer on the uh, audience Q and A. So uh, what that means is we'll get through as many questions as we can within that time limit. So what we do on this channel typically with uh, audience Q and A, uh, whoever the question is for gets the last word. That way we can move along smoothly. Let's say the question's for Matt. Uh, Matt oh. can answer. Josh can add a few points if he would like to, and then Matt would just get the last word. So. Uh, let's go all the way back to the beginning. First question that came in. And again, I apologize guys. If a lot of these questions, since they came in kind of closer to the beginning, you know, they may be it's questions right. you guys answer. No worries. So, okay. So this question is from jungle jargon, $5 super chat. I appreciate the question. His question is for Matt. Do unbelievers pay for their sin? Is their sin in God never covered? Do unbelievers pay for their sin? Is their sin in God uncovered? Covered? Yeah, let, let me put it up on screen if I can. That doesn't because... make any sense. Do, you, do unbelievers <laughs> pay for their sin? They're the ones who suffer the consequences for their own sin. Because sin is against an infinitely holy God, then the duration of their punishment due to their sin will also be infinite. Is their sin I, I don't even like to read that. Their sin in God. That, that, that's a problematic phrase to me. Uh, never cover so i don't understand what that means so i'm not going to address that and no worries no worries i just work here so i just read them word for it all right go from there so actually jungle jargon if you are in the chat and you wanted to uh you know uh elaborate or anything like that uh, go ahead so this next question comes in and this one is actually for you josh okay um so this one comes in from bill i appreciate the question bill he asks, if Jesus paid for all men sin debt at the cross, Colossians 2.14, then why aren't all men saved? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so that's kind of the, the whole thesis of my argument. is, And, and I think this might actually provide uh, sort of an answer as I was thinking about it for Matt. The, with the penal, the, so there's a penal and a relational side to my argument. The penal side is going to be physical death. Uh, if the if if there's physical resurrection, the penal side has been um, substituted by the death and resurrection of Christ. So that would be the penal side of the physical side of your life. I believe that we're a tripartite being. Uh, some some believe we're a bipartite. Some believe in in physicalism. I, I think there's problems with those two things, especially physicalism. But um, what I would say is. As it, and this might answer Matt's question. It might answer this guy's question as well. Not all people go to hell um, or not all people are saved because the penal side isn't salvation isn't just a transaction. You have to have faith to have ultimate final salvation, which is the relational side that, that God requires in order for entrance into heaven. Um, for those who have the atonement applied to them, 
that'd be a, the appropriation of of uh, the physical side of the penalty of death through Christ. Uh, that doesn't have anything to do with us. Your sin was paid for on the physical side. The problem is we need our our spirit and our soul cleansed, which may also be a legal side of of personal personal faith, either uh, um, either faith by believing in Christ or rejecting Christ. So might have something to think about there. Matt, you've, you've definitely got something to say about that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Matt, over to well, you. Incidentally, um, <laughs> relational side is legal according to you. That's what you said. And so I think you're inconsistent in how you, you use the term relational and, and uh, penal. Uh, it's not only people saved. Salvation isn't just a transaction. That's correct. But the thing is, we're saved from God because he's the righteous judge and what we're saved from is his judgment. The salvation is wrought by the sacrifice of Christ that removes the sin of the elect. And then God grants, uh, as it says in Acts 13, 48, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So they believed because God had appointed them to, and he grants that they believe Philippians 129. And so God is secure in who he uh, has done his work for, and I can go on and on, but uh, yeah, I don't know if I responded too much. So I get the final word on that. Oh. Yeah, go ahead, Josh. Go ahead. So I, I think X thirteen forty eight is is one of those overplayed proof texts from from Calvinist and and showing that this appointment is some some uh, eternal decree on who God's elect are that that they they would be saved through faith. When when if you actually look in the context, it shows that. These these people here actually heard the word and believed it before they were, but before they were disposed um, to eternal life. So uh, that would be the context of that. I, I do think that there's some development to be made within my own understanding of this model. I think that the the penal side of the physical uh, resurrection of and through of death has been paid for by Christ. I do see the spiritual side as well, which would be related to the relational um, aspect of faith. So there's some development there. I need to look into it more, but yeah, Matt, you've, you've got a good point there. So. All right. I appreciate the responses from the both of you. So this next question comes in and it's a question for the both of you. So um, question is how does being blotted out of the book of life hold to your specific position? Uh, whoever wants to start. Hey, I'll go first or well, unless you want to go first, I don't care. It doesn't no, you got it. All right. Book of Life, there's a lot of debate on what that actually is. Uh, contextually, historically, it looks like the Book of Life was a book that was held by the elders at the gates of a city or a town, and it listed the people who were alive. And when they died, their name was crossed out. And so it's when God says, I will not blot your name out of the Book of Life, doesn't mean it can be. It means it won't be. And so there's debates about this issue, and I've written about it, I've taught about it, and to be honest, uh, I have some ideas, but I'm not really sure what it means. Not because it might challenge my position. No, it's just, well, what does it mean? And and that's a difficulty, particularly in the book of Revelation, when it says it will not blot out. Does it mean that you it can be blotted out? Or does it mean him saying, I will not blot it out? It's not going to happen. Yeah which means it can't. And so both of those are possible logically, exegetically, and then which means what, and then the things attached to it. And that's why I say, I'm not exactly sure. And I, that's where I go. You know. Yeah. Um, okay. To, so to follow up on that, I, I tend to agree with, with Matt on that aspect. I, I've, I've heard a number of different things on, on the Book of Life. It's kind of mysterious to me as to its meaning here and what's going on. Some people say that the Book of Life is different from the Lamb's Book of Life. 
uh, I, I tend to think that the book of life is, is, um, is something that's, that has everybody's name written in it. The blotting out would be those who have rejected Christ as their savior, the blotting out there. So, um, it, it could also be, um, if, if, if Matt's correct, that you won't be blotted out, that could be a reference to eternal security, um, or preservation of the saints, if you want to look at it from the Calvinist side. So, um, I, I really haven't put enough thought into it, but that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm at on it. It's a tough position. It's a tough, tough person. It is. I completely agree. That's the, the book of life is definitely the meat of the word and uh, great responses, gentlemen, on, on a technical question. Tough topic. So this one comes in from Saint Beloved, $5 super chat. I appreciate it. He says, Matt, why do you think in the entire Bible, God doesn't explain how he chooses salvation? Well, who says he doesn't in the entire Bible? But nevertheless, uh, <laughs> it doesn't explain how God how he chooses salvation for people, how he chooses the elect. You mean, that's what you mean, how he chooses people for salvation. We are not privy to the mind of God from eternity past. We know that he does not choose them based on what's in them in any way, shape, or form, James 2, 2 through 4. It's not based on any quality in us or any foreseen quality in us. That would mean that God's choice is based upon man's choice. That violates aseity, and it shows partiality, which violates Romans 2, 11, and James 2, 4, uh, 2 through 4. So he doesn't tell us except to say that he works all things after the counsel of his will. He just says that's what he does. He doesn't say how or any criteria except that it rests in him, not in us. Yeah. So for me, um, I'm kind of like, Matt, I listen to your, your show every now and then. And, and lately you've been reading those hate mail, those hate mail. Oh, you like the hate mails? I, I like, read some. I, I like your reactions. Some of those are pretty good. I might write some just so you can get a good one in there. <laughs> Write <laughs> one to me. This is from Josh. He's a real heretic. Um, so I, I say that to kind of preface um, you Calvinists. This is this is I like to trigger Calvinists sometimes. Like Matt likes to read his hate mail. Um, but my my what I'm getting at is I, I think that that is the good news of Calvinism. You're elect. It's such it's an arbitrary position. It's an arbitrary choice. Uh, you have no idea what the the conditions are that God is choosing. Nobody knows it's a mystery, but the Calvinists tend to know that uh, some things about it that nobody else does. So I think it's arbitrary. I think from the Calvinist position, you have no idea, but from the Bible, I do think that, um, that it, it's pretty clear that anybody can be saved, that God, God loves you. God gave his, his son for you. And he's been raised in resurrection to give you new life that you might spend an eternity with him. If you appropriate by faith. Do I get a response to that or not? No, yeah, the, the question was for you, Matt. You get the last word. Yeah, when everybody says that Calvinists believe that God is arbitrary, that is not the biblical position. It's not the Calvinist position. God is not arbitrary about anything. He works all things after the counsel of his will, period. That arbitrary thing. There's two points you made. I didn't get to the second. I forgot it already. But God is not arbitrary. We do not teach he's arbitrary. We do not say, oh, meeny, meeny, miny, mo. He has his reasons. They rest in him. And that's what we would say. Anyway, that's, there you go. Well, thank you, uh, Matt and Josh. I appreciate that. So this one comes in from Veco. We got a good uh, Veco, um, <laughs> yeah. and he's coming at you, Josh. Um, what's nice is we got a good mix of questions for both Josh and Matt. So the uh, you know Calvinist and non-Calvinist position. So he says, if God doesn't impute righteousness upon the believer, but the believer still had faith, are they going to be saved? If God doesn't impute righteousness on the believer, but the believer still has faith, um, 
I, I think I'm not really sure I understand that question. I, I think that if one appropriates their faith in the finished work and person of Christ, that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them. So, right. unless he's speaking that. of a false faith, I don't, I don't really know. Mm, okay. Um, Matt, did you want to add anything to oh, it? Oh yeah. Considering it came from Veckel, then I can understand why the question is so badly thought out and reasoned uh, that it's confusing. Because, uh, you know, it's Veckel. Uh, so uh, God doesn't impute righteousness. It's a, it's a non sequitur to say that uh, people would not believe who, uh, who are believers who aren't imputed because God grants that they, they believe. And so it has to be, <laughs> it has to be that they're simultaneous. <clears throat> There you go, Veckel. I got it. There we go. Uh, Josh, if you wanted to just add anything final or you want to. No, I don't. That's good. All right. Perfect. So it's Veckel. He's worth it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then Veckel can start his own program reading off uh, hate mail. So. (laughs) (laughs) Veckel. That's right. So um, here we go. A question from. I'm just posting them in the live chat, putting up on screen to help you guys. So bubble gum gun, two dollars super chat. I appreciate it. both. What is God's legal code and is it absolute? Uh, it's a question for both. So I'm not sure who wants to start, but yeah, I'll jump in. Okay. Legal code would be the uh, law, the 613 commandments broken up into the main three main categories written in the old Testament. And is it absolute? The, it, it, yes and no. There's some aspects that are absolute and some that are not, because the law is main, three main categories, the moral, judicial, and the priestly. The priestly is now fulfilled in Christ, so no longer needed. The judicial is under the theocratic system of the law, which Israel was under, and that's not the state there. The moral is absolute and invariant, but the other ones can be uh, varied, and sometimes there are certain laws that are covenantally based, have conditions. Uh, which means that they will uh, be abrogated at the point of that. And plus, when you go to Hebrews 8.13 and Hebrews 9.15-16, through 16, you'll find out that the Old Testament covenant, which is uh, testament, testamentum in Latin, Old Covenant, New Covenant, the Old Covenant is abrogated by the New Testament uh, revelation and death of Christ. And so it gets more complicated, but it's a good question. It's one of those questions yeah. that would lead to an hour-long discussion. Yeah, It's a good question. <clears throat> Um, so uh, my answer, I, I would I would say God's law is basically a standard for righteousness. I, I don't believe that the law is ever has ever been or is ever going to be intended um, for one to attain entrance into heaven. Some some people think that I, I I don't believe that's what it is. I think I think that the law was designed to to lead us to Christ as our schoolmaster and to show us uh, the the depravity that we that we have and the need for Christ that we have. Um, but as far as, as far as I'm concerned, I, I like this term that I heard from Charlie Bing recently. Um, some people, a lot of people call up us free grace guys, antinomian. I, I think I like the, the term necronomian a lot better, which just means that we're dead to the law and alive through Christ with our liberty in Christ. Well, we could talk about how we died to the law and when and where that'd be interesting. <laughs> All right. Great responses from the both of you. And uh, yeah, it looks like we could probably have a, a dozen follow-up debates with, uh, with you two brothers. Discussions. So, yeah. Discussions. Discussions. Yeah. Yeah. So this one comes in from, apparently this is, this is um, 
somebody you know, he specified, Matt knows me. So whatever that means. Refuge and Strength Ministries. Question for Matt. He asks, in Acts, the apostles or any other believer never say Christ died for you or Christ loves you. It is therefore unnecessary. What do you say? Oh, yeah. In, in the book of Acts, he died for you. Yeah. Um, he, it does say he died for sinners. I think it is. I forgot where. Uh, you die, you know, propitiate for the whole world, you know, first John 2, 2, 4, 10, things like that. Um, I'm just thinking out loud, the apostles or any other never say Christ died for you. That's true. Or Christ loves you. Uh, but, but it does say God should love the world. That's what Jesus says. But you're, yeah, in the book of Acts, I think you got a point there. It's therefore necessary. Well, I wouldn't say it's not necessary because the book of Acts doesn't say it because it might be said or hinted to in other places in Scripture. And so we have to limit it to the book of Acts. But if the if it's not there in the New Testament at all, to say Christ, where they say Christ died for you, that doesn't mean we can't say it, but it means that it's worth a discussion to see why that is the case. And and I think that was an interesting point. I think it is a good it's a uh, I think it's a good good point. You know, it didn't say that those words aren't there. It'd be worth discussing, worth researching. Yeah, I, I, I think that's that. a I think that's a fair point. Um, but I would also <laughs> kind of I to me that's it's it's one of those questions that is I don't know it's 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 proven a point behind what what they're writing. I it, for me personally, I just I think there's a lot of things that the apostles didn't say that can still be appropriate. Um, I mean, for instance, the, the the apostles didn't say, "Hey, go pass out tracks and street preach." You know, it's but can you do that and win people to Christ? I, yeah, I think you can. All right. I appreciate the responses from the both of you. So here's a, another question for both. Dirt Bike Action Cams member. So I appreciate it. Uh, he asked, <laughs> <laughs> question for both. So uh, here we go. The fun begins. I just wanted to see what both Josh and Matt think john 316 means so how, i guess how you guys would exegete well, it according to if, your if he goes first he can have the final oh. word after my heresy so <laughs> okay gosh man i don't know if you no, know i'll go this, first but... if you want because i get to speak after you because it goes you know the one addressing then i come and then you so i'm, I'm just giving you the grace yeah. buddy it's up to you well I, okay so i had i had some stuff that was i had written out and prepared on on this because i i know matt brings that up and it, he's got some good points but i think he's he's missing some some aspects of it. I don't have the verse pulled up in front of me. I guess that'd be something good to look you at. You don't know John three sixteen? No, Matt. What am I supposed to be like a Christian or something? Man. Um, okay. So he said, <laughs> for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I, you'll hear Matt's argument here um, saying that whosoever believes is not a reference to it's, it's not really saying everyone, um, can believe it's it or whosoever isn't in the Greek. The Greek word is pass, pos, uh, believeth, pisteo, whosoever believeth. It's 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 a reference to those who do believe. It's not a reference to some ontological group of people who are chosen to believe. It, it, it's 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 a passive thing. It's not an active, it's not an active participant, like an active um narrowing down to a specific group like these are the believing ones who will never perish it's saying whoever whoever ends up believing won't perish it's 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 to me it's saying it's available to all whoever chooses to believe in christ uh you won't perish you'll have everlasting life and here's why because god sent not a son into the world to condemn it 
but through the world, um, you might be saved. So that's that's how I see it. It's available to all. The whosoever believeth it is a reference to um, anyone who chooses to believe in Christ, not those who are chosen to believe in Christ. So I would agree. It's it's for everyone who chooses to believe. I agree. And the scriptures tell us how they end up believing <laughs> because God grants that they believe. In Philippians, I mean, in uh, John 3, 16, so God's love the world. The word world there, cosmos, can have different meanings, at least five different ones. And uh, I've done research on that. I've got a grid on it and a whole bit. And Jesus was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15, 24. This is a covenantal thing. He was not sent to the whole world. This is what Jesus says. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So then when the Jews broke the covenant, we the Gentiles are grafted in. And therefore, God loves the whole world. And so the whole world means all nation groups, all people groups and things like that. That's what I believe. And it says in the Greek, poshopistuon. Uh, the believing one, all the believers, uh, the believing one, all the believing ones, literally. And then we don't talk like that in, in English. So they say whoever. Well, that's the Greek word host. It's not there in the Greek. And so it says God so loved all people groups and all nations, not just the Israelite nation that Jesus was sent for, that whoever or all the one believing will have eternal life. And I like what he said. Uh, it's a reference to those who believe, not an ontological group. Um, hey, yes and no to that, but I like that. It's a reference to those who believe. And I agree, whoever believes. The question then becomes, why do they believe? And that's, we could discuss free will. Oh, I love talking free will. You think this is hard? Free will is harder. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I, I, I think earlier in the debate, I actually referenced uh, John 3, 16 and 17. In verse 16, tone cosmon, the world not being uh, a reference merely to the elect. And and I think Matt is is agreeing with that, but his point is towards who the believing ones are and how they why they believe. I, I think that you can't actually limit um, this as the believing ones to the elect only. And I think we're in agreement on that. But um, I, to Matt's point, what was it? What was your point? Um I, it was I a forgot great what one too. Point. There was awesome. a point that I was going to respond to, Matt, but I forgot now. So, uh, own how not how they believe, um, but that they believe. No, it wasn't that one. It, it, there was another point that you made. The point that I was really smart and humble, and you were going to address. <laughs> no, yeah, <laughs> sorry, that one. I slipped that in there. It was I guess, oh, not true. I had a good response. You were going to change your whole opinion on John three sixteen. <laughs> well, that would have been a good response. <laughs> you guys are making this fun so i appreciate it uh this question comes in from michael grider uh he says he's not really specifying anybody though but he said uh he's quoting a verse jesus answered them have i not chosen you 12 and one of you are, are the devil um so maybe uh how would you guys understand that verse from your uh yeah specific positions Matt, you can go first and have the last sure. word here. Yeah, uh, God ordained who would be disciples because God works all things after the counsel of his will. Jesus chose them knowing exactly who from the beginning would not believe. And that's in John 6, roughly 66, 67, 68 range. So he knew that from the beginning. So the choosing there does not mean choosing for salvation, but choosing for the work of fellowship of being a, a disciple, an apostle. And in that, uh, um, Judas did what he did. Uh, that, that's all, all I understand. It is the question. Can put the question back up. Um, so see, make sure I get it right or understand it. Yeah, let me see. Uh, Michael Grider, if you're in the chat and you wanted to um, 
elaborate because he's saying that's not the question, but um, he just. I haven't chosen 12. Yeah, well, it's just a comment. Uh, it's not a question, it's just a comment. So I just did. Yeah. So I think it yeah. means. I'm not sure what your question is, Michael. Um, he's saying that that's not his question. So if you want, just tag me in the chat right now, Michael, with your specific question. We'll put it up on screen for the debaters to uh, mail address. a $20 bill to Donnie with, uh, <laughs> with a question, paperclip to it. Oh, that's good. So I guess in the meantime, we'll just kind of get to the next one until he um, until he does that. So here's the next question. This one comes in from um, Evolution Fairy Tale, and I will put it up on screen. I, I agree. I think we, we can all agree on that one. So uh, question for Matt, 2 Peter 3, 9. Uh -huh. <clears throat> Wouldn't that mean that God loves all people? unconditionally where does it say he loves all people unconditionally <laughs> it doesn't say that in the text the lord is not, is not slow about his promise as some count slowness uh he loves all people it doesn't say that in the text but is patient toward you not wishing for any to, to perish but for all to come to repentance there's two things we can understand here and this is worth a discussion it really is who's the all and I can show you from scripture that there's a group called the all that's everybody and a group called the all that's not everybody. I can show that to you from scripture. It logically is necessary and there's ways to do that. Not that hard. I've done this study for many years, uh, but he wants all to come to repentance. There is also a sense because they all could be only the elect. There's also a sense in which he can, now this could sound odd, desire one thing and arrange another. People think, well, Matt, you're crazy. That's not the case. Because he can say he wants all men to come to repentance, yet he grants repentance, Second Timothy, I mean, uh, Second Timothy 2.25. But also, if he wants them to come to repentance, then why does Jesus speak in parables? So they will not come to repentance and not be forgiven in Mark 4, 10 through, uh, 10 through 12. So this verse is a very interesting verse. And it's not just simply, oh, see, Calvinism is refuted. No, it's who's the all? And if God wants all to be saved, can he arrange something different than what he requires? And I can show you scriptures in the Old Testament where God says, I want you to do this. And then he arranges for them to do something else. I can show you those in the Bible. And so that is there. It's a nice Bible study. Don't have them memorized. And uh, the all could be the elect. I don't necessarily mean it has to be that, but it could be. And so there's different ways it could be understood. It's a great question. And uh, it's worth a discussion. It really is. I appreciate the response, okay. Matt. Yeah, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, so um, this is this is one of those verses I used to use uh, to kind of try to prove a, a universal atonement. But I've I've kind of had to take a step back and change my perspective on that because in verses one and eight, it's it's addressing the beloved. So personally, I think there's a strong case that. While the Lord is is not willing that any should perish, it refers to the category of people who are beloved rather than a, a broader universal salvation. But I also think that this verse shows us a couple of things. One, that God's ultimate purpose is for the beloved not to per perish, which would be the particular purpose. And that, that too, the per, uh, particular group would be found among the universal group and needs time to come to repentance, which is a distinguishment from the particular in particular from the universal side. But um, as, as far as a, a strong verse to go to show universal atonement, I, I think 1 Timothy 4.10 is, is 
probably one of the strongest, strongest, strongest ones shown that where it says we trust in the living God, who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe it shows two categories of people. The savior of all men would be a reference to the resurrection of Christ and the atonement of Christ, saving all men from the penalty of death. And uh, especially to those to, who believe would be a reference to the, the relational side of those who appropriate faith in Christ. Wow, boy, there's a lot there. First Timothy 4.10, we could discuss at length for a while. And uh, he's the savior of all men. He's not the savior of those who are in hell. It's one of the things to look for. He's a savior if he saves you. Now, that's one way of looking at it. Another savior is he's the opportunity to be a savior. So he's that savior in that sense. Which one is going there? And uh, in First Timothy 4.10, especially of those who believe, he's a spe- of all men, especially those who believe. In the generic sense, he came to save the world, but not every individual is going to be saved. But those who believe, it's a good verse. It's a good verse worth of discussion. There's pro- I think there's difficulties with both sides, both positions, limited and not limited. What I'm saying is no one position holds all the answers to everything in Scripture. And the reason I'm a Calvinist is because it, answer, in my opinion, answers most of the questions. If so, some theological perspective comes along that answers more, I'll move that way. I'm not married to this. But this is one of those things, one of those verses where there's questions on both sides, and it really opens up a discussion for quite a bit. It really does. All right. Well, great uh, responses from the both of you to some fantastic questions. So now we got one for you. Josh, this one comes in from Daniel Spencer. I appreciate the question, Daniel. His question is, do you think it would make more sense that people who go to hell go there to pay for their sins because they didn't accept the gift of God? Jesus died and paid it for them. Uh, no, I don't I don't think that people go to hell to pay for their sins. Um, I, I think that Jesus paid for their sins. I think that people go to hell because... Um, they're not in union with Christ and the imputation of the righteousness of Christ hasn't cleansed them spiritually. They need to be reborn. The rebirth is what you need. You need to be born again. The only way you can do that is by hearing the gospel and believing it. Um, You don't, you don't go to hell for your sins that, that Christ atoned for you. You, you go to hell for rejecting Christ. appreciate it josh anything you wanted to add um yeah jesus says believe in god believe also in me so it's a command it's a sin not to believe in him so if jesus paid for all sin then jesus also paid for the sin of not believing in him because it's a command of of christ believe in god believe also in me i I forget what that is i think it's john 14 1. and uh that's it's an issue whatever god commands is true whatever god says is right whatever you're supposed to do you're supposed to do that's a law because it's the nature of god out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks Matthew 12, 34. So Jesus speaks and he says certain things. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. He's giving a command. This is what you're obligated to do. So if you don't believe in Jesus, that's a sin. If Jesus paid for all sin, then he has to pay for the sin of unbelief as well. That's another problem for universal atonement. It's a serious problem for universal atonement. Yes. So do I get the last word on that, Donnie? Sure. Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, so Matt's going back to this, the, the transaction side of, of salvation. If, if, if sin is paid for, then, then it results in, in salvation. It results in faith that's going to be granted. It results in faith that's going to be appropriated because of and so on it related to the elect, et cetera. 
But the problem is it, it's it's missing the point. The, the point is the relational side of salvation. And, and that's something that this model accounts for. Even if, if unbelief is a sin, within this model, that sin can be paid for uh, by Christ and atoned for. And, and you can... <laughs> you can still be raised a new life in resurrection in resurrection with a body that's designed to live forever and, and, and still go to hell. If that, if that sin is atoned for the problem is you're missing the appropriation of the righteousness of Christ by faith. And that's not through a transaction. All right. I appreciate uh, the responses from both of you, Josh and Matt. So this one now is for Matt comes in the form of a super chat jungle jargon. I appreciate it. He asks, Matt, can there be sin? in God's creation that is never paid for. Yes. All the sin that's not imputed to Christ. Sin is a legal debt. And if it's paid for, the legal debt's canceled. Can there be a sin in God's creation that's never paid for? Yeah. The sin that uh, is not imputed to Christ. That would include blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, for one thing. Not imputed to Christ. Uh, and any, any and other sins that uh, were not imputed to him. Otherwise, people have to go to heaven. Yeah, that's my whole position. Yeah. Yeah. So here's here's my response to that. And we didn't get to get in this. This would open a whole, whole different can of worms. But uh, one of the, one of the references that I brought up in my opening uh, with the problems of Calvinism was was who actually died on the cross. And one of the problems with Calvinism is is related to the imputed guilt side of the nature of Adam and, and the fallenness of of uh, being born with a sin nature. Um, Calvinists don't believe that Jesus had the same nature as man as it's related to the human nature of man. Uh, and, and that's extremely problematic. If he, if he, if Christ didn't actually assume the nature of humanity for which he died, then we're, we're yet in need of a savior. And that's major problem. That's a major, major problem for Calvinism. I, I got to jump in. I'm sorry, but that, that's a, you, you really rep- misrepresented our position and, uh, that's worth a discussion for you and I to have because it's such a serious one on the nature of work of Christ and who he is and the hypostatic union, communicatio idiomatum, the yeah. whole bet. Uh, so I would just say politely that you, you got it very wrong and it's worth a discussion. We could exchange phone numbers if you want and talk about it in private, but that's a serious issue. Okay. I appreciate that. Um, that question was for you, Matt. So you get the last word. Oh, I do. Um, that was it. Okay. Dang yeah. it. I would have done more. <laughs> there you go. Um, all right. So this question comes in from Lena. I appreciate the question. Um, please ask Matt if Jesus was separated from the father since the penalty for sin is separation from God. Yeah. Um, there's a, there are different senses. We've got to understand, first of all, I'll go through this quickly as I can. The doctrine of the Trinity states what's called the divine simplicity that God is three persons in one, uh, in one being who's eternal in that state. Divine simplicity says there's not three parts, but one essence and one part of God. And that, not one part of God, that there's one thing that God is. And that the, the issue of God became becoming one of us. So by the logical necessity, what's called the ontological trinity, the nature and essence of God's divine nature as being Trinitarian, Jesus cannot be separated from God the Father. Otherwise, that would destroy the trinity. So it's an impossibility. Now, there's an issue under the hypostatic union, which deals with the 
two natures of Christ and the one person or two natures, but there's also a doctrine called the communicatio idiomatum, where the attributes of both natures are ascribed to the single person. Jesus is a single person. Jesus as a single person came into existence 2,000 years ago when the union of the divine and the human natures uh, occurred 2,000 years ago. In this sense, the attributes of both natures are ascribed to the, to, uh, the Father. So Jesus in his human, not the Father, but to the person. So the, the issue then becomes how is, when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, 1. Is it a separation? It doesn't say so. Because it cannot be ontological separation, but could there be a fellowship separation? If so, it would have to be dealt with in the hypostatic union communicatio idiomatum. I, I went through this quickly because, I'm not trying to snow anybody, that's a, a very interesting question, and it dabbles and touches on these different topics. Of the ontological trinity, economic trinity, hypostatic union, communicatio idiomatum, and Philippians uh, 2, 5 through 8, the kenosis. And so it's a, another great question, but it's worth discussing for about an hour. And it, it touches all kinds of theological uh, perspectives. And no, Stacy, uh, Stacy always says, I'm not dodging. Stacy <laughs> doesn't have all his paws in the litter box. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Matt, so, you and Stacey had a, had a fun debate months ago. So. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah <Stacey. laughs> On this channel, actually, yeah, Stacy and Josh as well. So, uh, oh, really, yeah, we fun. can talk. <laughs> um, oh man, Matt, I watched oh, that. I, I I don't think Stacy actually understands when he's been beat down in that. But okay, Stacy, I love you, even though even though yep, we disagree right. on a lot of stuff. Well, um, okay, so let me let me give a brief answer to this. Um, one, I don't believe that uh, the penalty of sin is separation from the Father. Um, I, I think that that wording needs to be reworded. Uh, but but also, I I think that as soon as you start adopting things like the communicatio idiomatum, you have you've just done away with uh, divine simplicity. I think there's major problems with divine simplicity. There's major problems with the timelessness of God as it's related to the incarnation. There's major, major problems with the immutability of Christ as it's related to the incarnation. And as, as when you get into the hypostasis, as it's, as it's defined by the Calvinist, you don't have just one person there. You've got two people. You have two natures. There's two people. If, if, the, if the person of Christ who died on the cross wasn't, wasn't one, I, and I get we get into the hypostasis and how the divine doesn't die, the human dies, the the human nature versus the divine nature and those two things how they how they work together but 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 essentially you've got major problems as it's as it's related to those three areas thank you josh go ahead matt uh maybe we need to do a little study on the hypostatic <laughs> union and the communicatio idiomatum as it relates to the to the divine simplicity issues these are debates i've had many times i'm not so sure you understand the relationship i'm not so sure well, you just made me twenty dollars. Okay. Uh, okay, great. Uh, but uh, I, I, well, from what you said, there's confusion. Divine simplicity deals with a trinitarian thing. The communicatio idiomatum deals with the person of Christ in the incarnation, right. yep. and the communication of the properties in the one person. The divine nature is not affected. Divine simplicity is still intact. There should be no comment by anybody who understands the issues to say that one affects the other in a deleterious way. It's not the case. Yeah. All right, gentlemen. 
Uh, I appreciate the engaging Q&A. What we'll start doing here is kind of winding down with the uh, last couple questions. Timer went off about 10 minutes ago. I couldn't believe how quickly 30 minutes went by. Uh, we, we've had a lot of questions, a lot of good questions, and I know there's going to be an after show as well. So one uh, last question for Josh, then a question for the both of you, and then we are going to call it because uh, great endurance from the both of you. Uh, so this question comes in from the Freed Thinker, uh, Tyler Vela. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate the question. Actually, Josh, you're going to be debating Tyler next month. So, Oh, yeah, that's fun. right. So he asks you, uh, Josh, should husbands offer their sacrificial love to all women? Well, if they were God, they would. There we okay. go, short and sweet. <laughs> um, should husbands offer their sacrificial love? When I am sacrificially loving to my wife, I'll let you know the answer. I'm still trying to work on that one. I've been married 35 years, and uh, she would not say I'm sacrificially loving. She'd say, "Get just stop. That's what she would say to me. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So, um, okay, so we'll just move on to the last question then. Uh, great job, uh, both of you guys. Uh, I apologize to anybody whose question we didn't get to. Really, we'd be here all night. So uh, last question is for both. And unfortunately, I lost it in the chat, but I do remember it is from Jamie Russell. Uh, Jamie Russell says, question for both. Did God ordain evil? And it's it's a question specific to both positions. <laughs> Whoever wants to start, go ahead. No, okay. absolutely not. Of course he did. You have to understand what ordination means to ordain there's different levels of causation there's there's a direct and indirect causation and there's also the issue of what's called ultimate proximate and efficient causation to say that god doesn't ordain it people don't understand what the word means it doesn't mean he puts necessarily puts his hand on your hand and then does this thing and this is you're doing that hold on a sec hello neek Okay. No worries. That was weird. The the door just started uh, like someone was trying to get in, and my wife has health issues. I get up to check, and there's nobody there. <laughs> so, so I apologize for that, but that's no worries. Happen. No worries. Okay. What was the question? Um, what was the? No worries. A perfectly understandable, Matt. Question was: Did God ordain evil? Oh, and so the or issue of ordination depends on the definition. People make a mistake when they think ordain, ordain always means directly caused. Not the, that's not the case. Ordination necessarily can include the work of God, how he ordains everything, because he works all things after the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. The all things falls into the category of his ordination. And you have to understand, not trying to be all this heady stuff. You have to understand what has to do with ultimate, proximate, and efficient causation. And that's where the answer rise, uh, lies. So this is a very common question. And, and I'd be willing to talk about it in the after show if you guys want and go through it slowly. But that's that's what it is. It does not mean direct causation. It can mean, but it, it in some cases it does, and in other cases it does not. That's what it means theologically when the term is used. Okay. I appreciate the response, Matt. Uh, Josh, go ahead. Um, I would just say you have to have a super complicated answer from a Calvinist to be able to explain uh, how God ordains evil. Uh, if you have an eternal decree. So if you have an eternal decree and nothing can happen outside of what God has decreed, 
there's really no freedom, even if you want to say it's compatibilism, it's still exhaustive de divine determinism. So uh, if, if you want to say that man is free, you're, you're free to do what God's determined you to do. And that's it. God needs evil so that he can redeem it. But then within that model, God is actually first the first cause uh, for evil to exist so that he can redeem the, the evil that he caused as the first cause. Uh, we, we can get into categories of who, who's the second cause and place responsibility on the second cause. But God's the first mover. God's the first mover in that model. And it makes God evil. Um, so I get a little comment on that, right? Is that it well, I guess it was a question for both. Oh, I'm not sure okay. if you guys wanted to. Yeah, we need to discuss that because, Josh, uh, I would say that uh, your understanding of those issues it, it needs a little pruning and a little watering in some areas. Uh, and, and to say, it, it, I would say that politely. You know, we could have a discussion on God's decrees, uh, causation, and things like that. And it's not super complicated. It's just what's necessary because Christian. Uh, Calvinists and non-Calvinists alike have wrestled with these questions and the issue of causation and ultimately uh, how God fits into it. All right. Well, I appreciate it. That was a, uh, a really fun uh, audience Q&A. We've had a very interactive chat tonight, uh, a really, really good uh, debate and back and forth, uh, Josh and Matt. So before we shut it down, as we always do, final words, final thoughts. I really want to thank uh, both of you gentlemen for giving us your time for this uh, three plus hour debate. I got to say time has flown by, at least from my end. So um, let's hand it to uh, Josh, final words, final thoughts, and thanks for doing this. Yeah, this has been good, Donnie. I appreciate you inviting me back on your show. Um, I'm not sure you're going to let me debate Tyler after this one in a, in a couple months, but <laughs> it's good, Matt. You you've had been, a great debate. You've been really good to have a conversation with. Oh, um, you too. So it's been fun. I appreciate I appreciate everything uh, for the audience who's sticking in there. I mean, those comments are still coming in, which is amazing to me. But um, I appreciate you guys listening and uh, bringing bringing out your challenging questions. There's I don't have it all figured out. I don't pretend to. I don't think there's any model that does. But um, but as it's related to the atonement and the, and uh, the goodness of God, I I think that uh, you're going to have a really tough time adopting a Calvinist model that that. Uh, can provide those things. So anyways, that's what I got. I appreciate it, guys. I appreciate it, Josh. Thank you so much. Um, you both did a great job. So great debate. Um, Matt, thank you as well for uh, doing this debate and for uh, coming on here on Standing for Truth. Final words, final thoughts. Sure. Just thanks and appreciate it to be able to defend what I believe is the truth. And we'll see, as I, as I like to say, we'll all be corrected when we get to heaven. Um, I'm going to do an after show. And give me five minutes. And you, if you want the link, you'll have to go to karm.org forward slash calendar. And I'll put it inside the date for here as the, the thing. Uh, I got to check on my wife. And I figured out what the noise was with the door. It was air pressure. Hmm. So it scared the crap out of me. My wife this wasn't a ghost or an alien. A dog <laughs> well, a dog. The, the aliens I would have enjoyed. Because, uh, Your third abduction. By, by, yeah, this year. You know, this year. Yeah, this, this year. That's right. So I would have done that. But anyway, hey, Josh, thanks, man. Yeah. And um, if we were together, proximate wise, and you wanted to go witness, I would do it, man. I would yeah. go out with you and, and witness in a whole bit. And uh, because the gospel is more important than Calvinism or non-Calvinism or Arminianism, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who, who uh, shed his blood for sinners. 
and that we put our faith and trust in him will be saved. And we got to yield to God in the process and beg him for his mercy upon us as he condescends, condescends to use us out of his great mercy and grace. And I'm just thankful for that. I'm thankful uh, that you love him and uh, I rejoice in that. And I just ask that the Lord would bless your ministry and that more people would come to know him through your, your work. So praise God. I appreciate that. Amen. Great final words, uh, brothers. You guys really made for an awesome debate. People are asking, Matt, are you doing an after show still? I just said so. Man. <laughs> so I don't know. Yes. All, actually, you know what? My bad. They're asking for the link specifically. Yeah. Have you put the link in the? No, I have not yet because I'm okay. still here. <laughs> He's debating, guys. <laughs> hey, Matt, where are you going to put that? Because I'd like to listen to that tomorrow. Sure. <laughs> um, it's just go to, if you go to karm.org forward slash calendar, okay. uh, it has right there, uh, it has two points. I'll put in probably through two bulletin points, you know, limited atonement, Maslick versus Joshua Gibbs has the URL. And then I'll put uh, post, uh, post uh, discussion, participate yeah. and post discussion watch. Okay. And I'll put the links in. Great. And okay. I hope you're going to defend me how I'm not an historian. <laughs> well, we need to talk about that. I think what, here's what a lot of people don't realize this because historianism is an issue that I thought about with you. But but I, I know also know this, that during discussions, sometimes just things come out the way you don't want them to come out. Once I preached and, um, uh, and the elders came down, I, I was guest preaching in Southern California for years. And and I got down and they're all smiling at me, rocking on their, their heels. And I go, what? And I said, what you said up there. What I say? They said, "You said Jesus is not God." You said the sentence, and I went, "No, I didn't." And they're laughing because they know sometimes things just don't come out right. And uh, so, as a historian, we have to discuss historianism, Eutychianism, monophysitism, hypothetic union, communicatio dimatum, Apollinarianism, adoptionism. All these things are interrelated. And uh, I'd like to, you know, we could discuss. We could just talk yeah. sometime. Yeah. Healthy discussion. All right. Um, and one last question, Matt. Are you having an after show? I'm just kidding, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I got to say, it would have been really cool if you got abducted here uh, live. For, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there. <laughs> how many views, views this video would have gotten? Aliens are real. Donnie, the aliens I've seen look more like you than they do Josh. So uh, I appreciate very much. Yeah, that's right. It's tough learning to walk again after you know. It's like, come on. That's oh, that's good. Well, right there, perfect way to end it. Uh, Matt, you're safe. That's awesome. Uh, you know, praise the Lord. Let's head on over to Matt Slick's after show. In Fantastic debate. God bless everybody. Thank you yeah. for tuning in. Standing for truth. That's right. Now. Remember, See you guys. Wait five minutes. I go talk to my wife. Make sure it's good, and then I'll put it up. Put it up. Takes me five minutes. Five minutes. Five minutes. All right. Minutes.